Welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Novaretti. This is Stephen Robles, and today we have an incredible interview with both Dr. Neil Shenvey and Samuel Say. You've heard them both multiple times on the Free Mind Podcast, and they've been a part of our open forum on race and the church recently, and they've come together for an incredible time of questions and answers with a number of listeners that joined us live via Zoom. Before we jump in, we want to remind you of our longtime sponsor, Impact 360. Go to impact360.org to learn about their online courses on truth, worldview, and defending the resurrection. Use the promo code FREEMIND to get $25 off. And don't forget about their gap year program. Those who have graduated high school, maybe you have someone going into their senior year, going to be graduating next year, take a look at their gap year program. It's a nine-month program that brings students to their Impact 360 Institute and teaches them the solid foundation of a biblical worldview and trains them to engage with culture once they head off to college. You can get that application fee waived if you use the promo code FREEMIND. So learn all about Impact 360 at impact360.org. And now here's our open forum with Dr. Neil Shenvey and Samuel Say. Alrighty, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with your hosts at the Nerva and our dear brother-in-law, Stephen Robles. Steve is back in the house. He is back, and we are back together. So Amen. we're excited. Hey, so we're excited to have two special guests with us today who's been with us before, but not together, for an open question and answer session. And for those of you who have heard of them before, you know what I mean when I say that they are just equipped and anointed and super helpful in helping us navigate through this topic today. But would you join me in helping me welcome Neil Shinvi and Samuel Say? Yay, there's our uh, Our audience, our our clap track. So what we want you to do is uh, write down your questions in the chat session, and we will get to them shortly. We will get. I feel like this is like the Avengers, when like, you know, they they (laughs) each have had their own uh, separate (laughs) movie here. (laughs) And we got superheroes coming together. But uh, no, these guys are awesome, and we're so excited to have the two of y'all. I don't know that y'all have ever done a... um, a, a discussion online together, any, any ministry. Yeah, actually, I think no, I haven't. Yeah. I've I'm been admiring good. his work from afar. So it's a pleasure yeah. to be able to uh, get a chance to speak with him. Ditto. Uh, Sam, Sam calls me sir though on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got, I got that against him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was saying this before. What I have against Sam is that he's a huge Backstreet Boys fan. <laughs> so, um, but, he, but he did finally get a Mac. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> He's making Just steps forward. Slow so conversion. I have, to, I have to slowly get him, get him on some other uh, 90s boy bands that I think are well, better, but, but we can have that discussion later. I just figured that since my taste in music is so good, I need to match up my taste with, you know, my taste in laptops, and that's why I've moved up to Mac now. So, I see how you did that. I see how you did nice. that, right? Uh, but anyways, man, I'm super excited to have you guys tonight, and um, we're going to be taking these questions. But before we did... I can't remember when we had you guys on, but I think it was back in uh, June, uh, mid-June or something like that. But there was an article that that began to um, circulate right after, I think, or maybe it was already out before, um, but I wasn't aware of it. But basically, it was an article written by a lady, uh, let's see, her name is Kelly Hammond. I believe she's an English assistant, English professor at Liberty University. And, um, you know, what I saw was this article was kind of being 
put out as like, you know, here's why if you're, if you're, if you're a Christian and you're, you know, conservative and you are concerned about issues of critical race theory and cultural Marxism in this kind of woke movement moment that we're in, um, you don't really need to be because, you know, it's, while it may, you know, Marxist elements may be in it, critical race theory, uh, in an unbiblical sense, may be mixed in at some portions, really, the the thrust of the movement can be understood in a Christian way. And I think I'm, I might be, if I'm mischaracterizing that, you guys can weigh into it. But that was at least the way I saw some people using the article, whether she meant it to be used in that way or not. And so I thought it would be worth us maybe taking some time before we get the other questions and answers tonight to talk through that, because as I'm thinking about it, you know, you have the sort of like extreme um, spectrums, like where you, you get people that kind of move where Jane Hatmaker moves, or even some people that have moved further on the progressive side. But then you have kind of the people that are, they want to retain biblical orthodoxy, but, they, but they've been impacted by a lot of these concepts, and they're thinking, well, why can't we use, you know, some of these concepts well, and just kind of jump in on the movement, but nuance it a little bit, mm-hmm. and not maybe commit ourselves to the whole part, the whole Black Lives Matter thing, but maybe we can get out there with the signs and say, well, here's how we do it as Christians, that kind of deal. So, um, yeah, let's just jump into this article a little bit tonight. So I don't know. Um, I'll be open to approaching it however you guys want to. Would you want me to kind of read through segments or do you want to have any initial remarks on it before we jump into the details? I mean, I think when I read the article, uh, I read it and several people that know my work and follow it and appreciate it read the article too. And they said, you know, I don't see much in this article that you would disagree with. And I said, yeah, that's, that's, basically right. So what she does is she says, I can quote from it here. She says that a lot of Christians are afraid that some of these bad ideas, these unbiblical ideas might be stealthily replaced by rhetoric from other incompatible frameworks of thinking. So Christians are worried that some of the language and the ideas that are part of this woke movement uh, are coming from critical race theory. And she she agrees they are. She says critical race theory is also a significant force in gaining momentum she admits that critical race theory draws a lot on Marxism and Marxist ideas. And she says those are incompatible with Christianity. She says all of that up front, which is good. But then the bulk of the article uh, is spent diffusing some objections like, well, isn't this just Marxism? She's like, well, no, well, no it's not just Marxism. Isn't everything about Marxism false? Well, no, it's not all false. But so and she says the things that she actually says. I don't really disagree with. And so the, what I would say is if you step back from the article, though, what you said, Seth, is a little bit concerning, which is I was seeing people using the article to say, see, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing to see here. It's all fine. Uh, and that's not how the article actually was written, or not, I think not how it was intended. So the analogy I made when I explained the article would be imagine that, um, I remember actually it happened a few years ago, 20, uh, 2012, when, there, when Mitt Romney was a candidate for president and Mormonism became very big because people wanted to know what do Mormons believe. And so there were a lot of people going around talking about Mormonism. Well, imagine a Christian professor had said, uh, let me explain to you some common misconceptions about Mormonism. 
I understand that there are some basic religious differences between Christianity and Mormonism. I understand that. But a lot of the objections you'll hear are actually incorrect. So, for example, Mormons do really value the family. And Mormons do actually believe in Jesus Christ. They believe he was resurrected bodily. They believe he was born of the Virgin Mary. And so this article goes on and on about all the things that Mormons and Christians agree on. But then it only kind of gestures at the fact that they're actually different in some vague way. Well, I would say I don't disagree with anything that was said. Mormons do affirm the importance of the family. They are very moral people. They they do believe in that Jesus was uh, uh, that he was a, a, a real person that he was raised from the dead. And yet, if I never mention the huge basic fundamental conflicts between Mormonism and Christianity, then I am doing the reader a disservice. Especially if they then go on to say, "See." Mormonism and Christianity are basically the same religion. <laughs> I'd say, no, you've misunderstood or, or at least misapplied the article. So I think something similar can happen with this article. I, I don't think she intended to convey that critical race theory and Christianity were totally compatible and they're totally... I think she was just saying, here's some common misconceptions. There are some areas in which we can affirm these ideas as Christians, but she never really spelled out the differences. And that, I think, is a little bit of a problem. And just to add to that, uh, one of the things, one of the things I find odd about that particular article is she actually concedes the points that, the points that, you know, that Neil and myself and myself are saying, which is that Marxism and critical race theory is a big factor in how many people are responding to these racial issues. Mm She's just saying it's not entirely, but, but we would all agree with that. We're not saying it's entirely critical race theory or Marxism. We're just saying a lot of the premise, the theories behind it are very much influenced by that. And there are some people who, do, who may not understand critical race theory or Marxism, but how they are understanding it without perhaps knowing these terms is from the framework of critical race theory and Marxism. And, to me, I find the article that even more concerning, to be honest with you, because people were admitting that, yes, you're right, that Marxism and critical race theory are involved in this thing, but they don't realize that by admitting that, they're now saying, yeah, that's true, but it's not entirely that. Well, once you say that, then that goes to show that my point and Neil's, uh, Neil's point is very legitimate, that we're now at a point where we can have an article that admits that what we're saying is right, but used in a, in a, in a way to approve their view, right? That in the past, just maybe a couple of years ago, three years ago, you'd have some dismissing that Marxism and critical race theory had any role to do with this uh, movement. Now they're saying, yes, it is, but just not entirely. It, that's a big, um, that's a big, uh, progress or regress, you would say, in how people now are willing to talk about this particular issue. Yeah, go ahead, Neil, if you want to add something. Well, I was going to say a couple, two, two quick things. One is that another issue with the article, which is, I think it's wrong, but it tended to frame the objections to this movement in terms of Marxism. It said, okay, well, they're using a Marxist framework. And that's how it couched all of the incompatibility. It said, well, okay, this is based on Marxism, and that's the bad part. 
the, the, the issue, though, is that when Christians hear that, they say, well, great, I'm not a Marxist, so I can't possibly be absorbing bad ideas, right? If I reject Marxism, because I do, I own a business, for example, therefore, I must not be uh, susceptible to these false ideas, because I'm not a Marxist. But actually, the ideas go are, are not the real problems with the movement or uh, with critical race theory, say, aren't economic. It's something different. It's the real issue. And so I think that can actually lull Christians into a false sense of security because they say, hey, I'm not a Marxist. I'm cool. And say, no, wait a minute. You can totally reject Marxism and still absorb these wrong ideas about all kinds of things like oppression and racism and sexuality and and all these things that are tied together with critical race theory. And I can go through that, some of those um, shortly. Um, The other thing I just say is that I see people, this is happening more and more often. One of the things that I've insisted on over and over again is that we not shut down dialogue. And I've actually told conservatives too, do not shut down dialogue by claiming, oh, you're just a Marxist. You're a cultural Marxist. You're a critical race theorist. Don't just use those labels to dismiss people. That's a very, uh, I mean, frankly, it's a sinful thing to do to a brother in Christ. So don't shut down conversation. But now I'm seeing the other side where people are using, say, this article to say, you see, when you call me a critical race theorist, you're just a terrible fundamentalist. You don't know what you're talking about. And so I can ignore you. No, ooh, you're doing the opposite thing. You're shutting down people for, for raising concerns about critical race theory. I think we both have to be willing to actually listen and never shut down the conversation by either labeling someone as a cultural Marxist or by saying, you're just calling me a cultural Marxist. Let's actually listen to the concerns people have. Yeah, that's really, that's really good. I think both of you put your finger on something there that I've noticed. It's, it's, it's also encapsulated, I think, in the, the approach that the church has taken to the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole. Because I, I remember, you know, a few months ago, it was, well, you know, this is mainly about a race issue. Then the, then the stuff started coming out where some, you know, the people who hadn't done as much research that didn't believe it was actually Marxist in its underpinnings, mm-hmm. but they found the videos where, the, where one of the founders, co-founders was admitting, yeah, we are trained Marxists. And then the conversation moved from this isn't Marxism to, yeah, there's Marxism there, but there's also a lot of this good stuff. And I think you're right to say, Sam, that that is quite a concession. And, and what you were saying, Neil, too, is, is important because I've noticed this since even people have been watching this race forum. They're like, oh, man, that stuff you guys did was helpful, but it's shadow boxing because nobody really um, believes in this critical theory stuff at our church. In other words, they thought because they hadn't adopted the extreme versions that sometimes Neil was pointing out that certain evangelical leaders had. Like, for instance, uh, just a quick example, we were talking to some students when the Akimini Yuan Sparrow Conference thing mm-hmm. happened, and these students were like, wow, that's extreme, that's crazy, and they were reading a critical race theory book from a Christian perspective during, like that week, and then they didn't see the connection between the two. And so I just, I think that is where the conversation has moved in the church oftentimes is like now we're in this space where people think because you're rejecting Marxism, the label and the the extreme parts of it, that therefore you're not taking in many of the bad ideas that are coming through. And I think that'll be helpful as we, as we talk through that today. So um, as we look at this first 
And I think we do have some good questions already coming in, but just the first argument here. And if you're, if you're coming in today and you're like, man, I haven't been following this, I would, I would highly recommend you go back to the beginning of this series and watch all three videos. We started with where Neil laid out the framework for critical theory, and then we talked with Sam about um, social justice, other elements, systemic racism, and then we talked with Ryan Bomberger about the Black Lives Movement. Uh, matter movement in particular. So I'd recommend you go back to that and then watch this again. It'll make a lot more sense because we're not going to go back and cover all that ground today, but there'll be a lot of overlap. So argument one here um, from this book, uh, this article from Christianity Today, it was first released on Facebook and then picked up by CT. She said this, like all sin, racism originates in the human heart. Therefore, the solution to racism is for people's hearts to change. Quote, systemic racism, unquote, on the other hand, is a Marxist idea. That's what she's saying, conservatives mm-hmm. are saying. And then her response here is, is long, but I'm just going to read the beginning. She basically says, um, yeah, we agree with that as Christians, that sin does, racism does, like all sin, originate in the human heart. But we also need to confront systemic racism. Um, and she even referenced abortion as an example that conservatives would agree to of systems that, um, you know, perpetuate evil, even without necessarily evil individuals involved. Um, let, but I know we've talked about this already, but would you guys want to speak just into the problem with even accepting that language of systemic racism? And maybe, maybe let's uh, unpack that a bit. Um, yeah, Neil, allow me to go first here, because uh, I'll be sure. honest, that, uh, that argument really frustrates me, especially when they try to bring it into abortion. Um, so abortion is systemic oppression. And I know that because there are babies that are being killed that the government is sanctioning. Roe v. Wade is a law, right? Over here, um, we don't have a law here in Canada um, about abortion at all, but it's legal. Um, the issue is that we, I can point to laws, practices, that are with the government that, that the government affirms as being right. That is systemic oppression. The government is systemically oppressing babies here. With the 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 idea though about systemic racism is not really about policy. It should be, but it's not necessarily that. It's much more than that. It's policy, practices, culture, behaviors that could be interpreted by some as racist and it's also um primarily rooted in disparities which goes back to the whole idea about marxism that the premise is because there exist some disparities between groups that is inherently a mark or evidence of systemic oppression that is innately a marxist idea now marx would would be looking at it from strictly an economical uh, point of view. But critical race theorists look at it, particularly in, in this case, with um, concerning black people and white people. And one of the concerns about all this is it conflates what oppression really is, at least objectively, which is why I find it interesting that right now, one of the most, and I did a book review on this, as did uh, Neil too, um, on white fragility. Where now, she's now changing even that definition of racism that you mentioned earlier, where it's no longer um, an individual practice. Anti-racist now would say that racism really is systemic racism. 
before it was focused on the idea of prejudice plus power. Now it's much more than that. Now it's not even really about prejudice. Now, just as a white person in society, you are a racist. You are systemically racist because America's um, uh, culture or America's or the West, um, the West um, approval for individuality is racist. The West idea that racism has to be an objective, sorry, objective, identifiable, or tangible thing is white supremacy or racist. So already we are moving far beyond even what I would say, what that author is saying. So it concerns me when we try to bring it to abortion because I think naturally it, it downplays by elevating uh, racism in the way they do, it downplays the, serious, sorry, the seriousness of abortion. Because abortion is not just a culture that approves of it. It's not just a perception or disparity. Abortion is a systemic oppression because there are policies and practices being approved of by the government that is indeed oppressing preborn babies. Mm. That's good. Anything you want to add to that, Neil, before I ask you about your article on systemic racism? Well, yeah, I was going to quote from it, actually, because I think it's helpful just in terms of understanding how language is being used. So what Dr. Hammond is doing there is she's saying, look, when I as a Christian use a phrase like systemic racism, I mean that sin can infect systems in our society. And I think Sam and I would say, well, of course, yeah, and abortion is a great example of how sin has infected our laws and our, our ideas, right? I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, well, of course, abortion is okay. It's legal. Or, or yeah, I, I saw, you know, they just, it's just in the water that, oh, it's a, it's a woman's right to choose. And so, yes, sin, we are sinners and we can produce sinful practices, sinful ideas and sinful laws. But so she's saying, that's what I mean as a Christian when I talk about systemic racism, but as Sam pointed out, that's not what the term means when critical race theorists or anti-racist activists use the term. So here's a quote from Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He says, uh, a racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial inequity between racial groups. And you can also call it systemic racism, structural racism, institutional racism, etc. So how, what, is he, what does he mean by racial inequity? Here's an example he gives. He says, here's an example of racial inequity. 71% of white families lived in owner-occupied homes in 2014 compared to 45% of Latinx families and 41% of black families. That's racial inequity. That's a, but that's a disparity. Do you see the difference? He's saying any policy that, or law or anything, practice that sustains or produces disparities Difference is an outcome. That is systemic racism or racist policy. And he's not an outlier here. So here's a quote from uh, the N, uh, sorry, uh, the, the president of Race Forward. It's quoted in a USA Today article. He says that systemic racism is the complex interaction of culture, policy, and institutions that holds in place the outcomes we see in our lives. You, you see that? So, Dr. Hammond is saying, well, as a Christian, I interpret that phrase to mean sinful laws. But that's not how other people are using that phrase. They're using it to mean anything, anything that produces different outcomes. And they will, and so Kendi, for example, had an interview with Ezra Klein where he said, 
Well, is it really literally any law is either racist or anti-racist? Look, look anything. And he said, yes. Well, Ezra Klein said, what about reducing the capital gains tax? Like reducing the tax rate on, you know, earning money on stocks. Would that, would that, well, even that, he said, yeah, that would be racist. Why? Well, because blacks own less stocks and therefore they would benefit, they would, they would not gain by lowering the capital gains tax. And so Every single policy, every single law to Kendi is either racist or anti-racist, either part of systemic racism or it's part of undoing systemic racism. So what I just say there is that I understand that she's using the term in a different way, but that's not how the term is being used in our culture. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit, it's like, it's like when, a, when, a, when someone says, well, Mormons believe in grace too. Or Mormons believe in the virgin birth. Well, they do, but they've redefined those words. Exactly. So you, it's really dangerous to say, well, gosh, I affirm grace and, and salvation by grace, and so does Mormon. They, I, I affirm the virgin birth, and so do they. And I affirm that God's our father, and so do they. But they mean something entirely different. And, to, to, and I'm not saying Dr. Cameron doesn't get this, but I'm saying that people, other people might not. So to, for, to, to not call attention to the different definitions these terms are being given can be quite confusing and dangerous. And so, Neil, you're saying that Ibram Kendi's definition there, you said he's not an outlier. In other words, he represents what you see as the main thrust of the way this phrase is being used by the people that are the pace setters for this topic, or they are the curators of this idea. Is that, is that, is that the most common way uh, that the, the scholars and the people that talk about systemic racism, is that how they're using it? Yeah. I mean, I looked up, I had thrive. If you get my article that I wrote called does systemic racism exist? I pulled out three articles. I mean, one was from Kendi. Kendi was um, the author of how to be an anti-racist. That was like the number two book on Amazon yeah. a few weeks ago. I pulled a, a definition out from D'Angelo's book um, with uh, Aslam Sensoy. Is everyone really equal? Uh, I pull an essay, uh, a definition, I think, from Bonilla Silva. That he's the president of the American Sociological Association. These are, these are three really popular, well-known scholars. And then I just Googled definition systemic racism and just pulled off definitions from the first page of hits, and they all talked about inequity, disparities, yes. and outcomes. So I, I, that's just – now, if you want to define the term differently – than everyone else's. That, that's fine, but you have to be clear that you're doing that. Yeah. And just to add to that, some of the most, uh, I think we've, we've all been talking about uh, naturally books, but I think one of the most recommended documentaries or movies during the last three months have also been the movie The 13th, which is also premised on the idea that um, Black Americans are, um, are overrepresented in... Um, in you know in 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 uh, in prison, and that in in of itself is proof of systemic racism based on the based on the premise that anything that leads to inequity or that leads to disparities against black people is a form of systemic racism. In fact, also going back to even George Floyd, right? The reason why George Floyd's murder is considered a racist murder doesn't have really anything to do. And I've had several talks with people who said this to me. It has nothing to do with what Derek Chauvin's intentions were. It's really about why the system, the police system, 
their actions have created inequity and disparities against black people. That's why police, the police need to be defunded or abolished because the entire system, whether, no matter what their intentions are, is, are, is leading to inequity and disparities against black people. You know? And just a, 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 another thing that's very concerning to me when it comes to the church. Some people, I think, don't understand why, uh, and I've said this before, why biblical theology or the church today is being considered a racist institution. That's because there are, so for example, some, many local churches have been labeled racist based not just on the fact that they don't agree with anti-racist, but also because they don't have a multi-ethnic church, right? And because they are predominantly white church, they're considered racist because they don't look like their city. So therefore, unless you have, since the black population in America is primarily, it's about 13%. If your church generally isn't, it doesn't have at least 13% of its members uh, you know, as black, or as the pastors, if you don't have you know, a couple of, or more than a couple of uh, pastors who are black in the church, you, you're considered by anti-racist as racist because you are not creating a culture that leads to, um, that leads to, I guess, parity in this sense. And actually, Sam, I'll add to that too. Just the fact that you are not anti-racist makes you racist. Let me quote, let me read a quote from uh, Kendi again from his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He's very clear. He's, he's, I mean, he's a very clear writer. He says, there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. One either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There is no in-between safe space of not racist. That's page nine. Then he, and he adds, to be very clear, the claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. The language of colorblindness, like the language of not racist, is a mask to hide racism. So if your church just says, like, I'm not entirely on board with this quote-unquote anti-racist movement, that's enough for Kennedy. He's very clear. Well, then you're a racist. So uh, I just want to, again, point out here that while and that the term anti-racist itself is another technical term that we have to define, because Christians will say, well, I'm totally opposed to racism. That, that makes me an anti-racist, right? And I'd say, well, no, you have to ask what that term means. Mm. These are all situations where, uh, for, and to just explain a little further why this is a problem, imagine I wrote an article saying, People are frightened of be of anti-racism as if it's this weird Marxist thing. But actually, as a Christian, I define anti-racism to just mean opposition to racism. Just means not being racist. Yeah. And you say, oh, it sounds really good. But so I could write an article like that. But that would be actually really confusing because I would be redefining the term in a way yeah. that Kendi and D'Angelo and actually many Christians are not defining it that way. Yeah. They're adopting this binary, you're either, it's basically an active commitment to dismantling the systems and structures of racism. That's mm-hmm. all, that's a basic, the basic definition of anti-racist. So it assumes a structural systemic understanding of racism that's built into the definition. Yeah. So if you reject that, Kendi says, you're racist. So there's a lot there you have to actually really tease out. You can't just slide up for, don't, don't go for slogans, Be, you know, think critically. And to, I think to also explain why this is so crucial 
and why this is it's becoming very mainstream, this idea. I think it was about a month ago. I forget which dictionary it was. I think it was maybe Merriam-Webster. Mm-hmm. I'm not yep. sure. And um, a black woman, I think, complained about their definition of racism, which is the traditional uh, definition of racism, which is really just prejudice against a person because of their race or their skin color, right? That is it. Now, the woman complained about it, or I think had a petition against their, uh, their definition, and Merriam-Webster changed it, or they are changing it now to define racism, not as a traditional version, but as the now anti-racist version of, um, of defining it as an, a system, an, a, an institution. So right now, if someone is a racist, it means that they are they are living and they are living in a system, so, or in Canada or in America or anywhere in the Western world, a system that is oppressing Black people or another um, minority group. Hmm. I'm curious, Neil. Do they go into um, how much activism makes you an anti-racist? I'm seeing the cancel culture attack people who have been active for a while, and then one small mistake makes you oh, now you're you're accused us with that title. So do they go into that? Yeah, it's interesting. Kendi uh, says very clearly, he's like, no one is just an, an anti-racist. It's an identity you adopt constantly. It's every moment you are, you're acting as a racist or as an anti-racist. You have to continually examine yourself, continually take on that identity and say, you know, I'm acting as an anti-racist consciously right now, second to second. D'Angelo says it's a lifelong pursuit She'll, and she says, I, there's some wild quotes from her in her book, White Fragility, but she says things like, I have a deeply racist worldview, I have deeply racist patterns, and it's a lifelong struggle to unlearn this, you know, this indoctrination into a racist society that I've been a part of as a white person. So that's, and that's pretty much a standard line. That, that's, a, that's the standard conception of anti-racism. It's, a, it's an identity you have to continually put on and unlearn these racist patterns for your entire life. It's not like you're, oh, I'm an anti-racist. Or it just, you, the, the, actually, the analogy they use, let me see, it's, it's this one. I know they use the analogy of smog, that, that white supremacy is like a smog in our culture. You can't escape it. It's everywhere you go, and you breathe it in no matter what. Oh, and that's one. Uh, I think D'Angelo uses the, the um, analogy of a moving treadmill. Uh, no, sorry, like, um, you know those walkways at the airport? That, you know, like they help you walk faster. She says the, the analogy is like our society is like one of those moving sidewalks in the airport. If you're standing still, you're being carried along along a racist trajectory. Like you're moving, you're, you're being racist by just standing still. The only way to not be racist or to be anti-racist is to walk the other direction. So that's the analogy. I think it's D'Angelo. It might be, uh, it might be Collins. I'm not sure, but it's, it's a common, they, people, they use these analogies. They're pretty common in the literature. I refer to anti-racism as, um, I say it this way, that it's take every thought captive, not to Christ, but to anti-racism. That's it. Like, your every thought and deed, every action has to be against racism, which is why, as you were, you know, going back to your question, you know, the whiteness, sorry, uh, sorry, um, silence is violence, Mm -hmm. comes from that idea that if there is racism around you, which in their mind there always is, and you're not actively speaking out against it, if you're silent, you are part of the problem. You are complicit and you are being violent or oppressive against other people or against black people in, in, you know, in this case because you are not subscribing to taking every thought captive to anti-racism. 
Okay, and one more thing too, just so we, people might think, well, you're saying these things, like uh, Sethi were saying, these students were saying, well, that's, this is the extreme form of these ideas, right? This is like well out there stuff. Well, again, Kendi and D'Angelo were like number one, number two, back-to-back best-selling authors on, on Amazon, Kindle, uh, Audible. So these are not marginal fringe figures. They're very popular. But more than that, this is just critical race theory. So I'm going to read from you. I, I, there are a lot of articles I could quote from. I'm going to just quote from one. It's from the Journal of Higher Education, 2009, by Harper, Patton, and Wooden. They list the seven central tenets of critical race theory. The number one tenet, the first tenet of critical race theories is this. Racism is a normal part of American life, often lacking the ability to be distinctively recognized. It's hard to see it, right? A critical race theory lens unveils the various forms in which racism continually manifests itself, despite espoused institutional values regarding equity and social justice. Now think about what they just said. The first rule of Fight Club, the first rule of critical race theory is racism is everywhere. It's a normal part of life. It's hiding behind these espoused values of colorblindness. That's number two, actually. Ideas like liberalism, neutrality, objectivity, colorblindness, and meritocracy camouflage how racial advantage propels the self-interest, power, and privileges of the dominant group. So number one and two, tenets number one and two say racism is everywhere, and it's hidden by claims of not being racist. So, so it's, this is not it's an, it's an, an aberration or some extreme form of critical race theory. This just is critical race theory. Yeah, and man, selfishly, I just want to go through point by point and <laughs> talk with you guys about this for hours. This is awesome. Uh, and, and you kind of led into point two, which I'll just touch on, and then we'll go to the question, uh, audience questions and maybe come back to this and, and wrap it up at the end. But she basically characterized critical race theory as one, power does exist and people do sometimes use it to oppress others. And two, oppressed people do suffer and their suffering is often unjust. But that really, I mean, and she's saying how that's obviously compatible with biblical, you know, ideas of injustice. But you're saying, no, 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 critical race theory, just at its essence, the simpliciter is, is actually involves way more than what she's listed here. Exactly. So what she said is, she, what she did basically was she, she took what is true in critical race theory, like power can be used for oppression, and then extracted that out and said, well, that's true. And I said, well, uh, yeah, of course it is. I mean, none of us are going to disagree. You're going to say, of course, power can be corrupted and power can, sure. But that's not what critical race theory is saying. It's just not. So I would agree with her that, yes, we can pull out these ideas, like, you know, and, and extract them from their, from their, wrong framework and say, well, those ideas are true. Yes, but that's not what's actually being taught. So we have to be very careful not to say that, that, oh, that's all they're saying. No, that's not all they're saying by any means. Mm. That's good. Well, well, I'm going to pause this. We'll come back to it. Stephen, why don't you go ahead and uh, hit us with some of these audience questions? Yeah. So this first one is from Andrew. This goes to the inequity point that you made it a little bit ago, Neil, but as Christians, should we be bothered that the net worth of a typical white family is almost 10 times greater than that of a black family. 
And he puts up brookings.edu as a website, probably where he got that stat. So again, this is the inequity question. You know, should we be concerned that white family average is 10 times greater net worth than that of a black family? I mean, I would say yes, because uh, now, is it necessarily racism? No. And in fact, I would argue that probably the bulk of that is, so I, in my article on systemic racism, I point out that we should actually sort of try to disaggregate this idea of quote unquote systemic racism into various categories. So one category would be like laws that are intended to harm people of color. That's one category. I think Christians should univocally say if there are laws that intentionally harm people of color or any group of people, we should get rid of them, period. The end. No discussion. If you're intentionally harming people with your laws, that's wicked. But then number two, there are other laws that unintentionally harm people of color. So those would be things like, for example, drug laws, right? Drug laws unintentionally harm people of color. They disproportionately harm people of color. So we should actually at least consider, well, are these laws, uh, are they just laws? They might be. I mean, anti-heroin laws are probably a good thing. But should marijuana be legal, illegal? That's a, a policy discussion. I mean, I think it should be, but I'm just pointing out, we can at least think about, are there any laws that unintentionally harm people of color? Uh, a good example would be um, the Eric Garner. Eric Garner uh, died from a chokehold in New York City after selling il- like an illegal cigarette, right? And some libertarians pointed out, look, no one passed that law against selling illegal cigarettes intending to harm black people. They didn't do that, right? And yet, because for what, you know, for whatever reason, black people tend to be often more, they're often poor. And they're often the people that are, that are on the streets, you know, selling illegal cigarettes, just statistically. Therefore, that law ends up harming them. So as a libertarian, they were saying, hey, if we have fewer laws like these that are kind of not needed, then you'll end up benefiting disproportionately people of color. Now, you could argue, no, we need those laws, but at least we can have a category for saying, hey, let's consider how this is harming various groups we may not intend to harm. Then number three, we have unconscious biases that harm people of color. You might assume things about people because of their skin color, and that can harm people, right? And that's something we can't address with law, probably, but it's a category we should have as Christians. For example, I know that um, I saw some papers saying that teachers often treat black students unfairly harshly, like it, uh, just because of their skin color. So I thought to myself, hey, my class is like you know, 30% black. So I should be really careful that I don't have any biases that would unfairly treat my students of color. So I, you know, I just took that into account when I, as I'm uh, giving them discipline, instructing them. It's in the back of my mind. Am I being fair? Check myself. And then finally, we have harm from historical racism. I guess this is the last category we're talking about when he talks about, like, about wealth. I think the, the number is actually more like, it's like a factor thir- of 13. So the median white family has, I think, a 13 times the wealth of the median black family. Now, is that necessarily racist? No. I mean, there can be big gaps in wealth from other, for other reasons. But I, is it probably the legacy of historical racism? I think at least it's a part Definitely the part. Now, how do I know that? If you look at the maps of cities, you can see how there are certain neighborhoods that are, are, are almost entirely black, the ghettos, right? Well, those were produced by housing policy in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and redlining. 
that put the, it, it concentrated poor black poverty in certain locations that created this terrible cycle of poverty. Okay. That was, that was something that, that, that racist laws and racist policies did to the black community. And we're feeling that there's effects today. So that, and that's part of the reason why we have racial wealth disparity. It's not the only reason, but it's part of the reason Now Christians today can say, well, I didn't do that. I didn't pass those laws. I, I, those laws were wicked. I don't want those laws. But we can still say, how can we help? See, the, a great analogy is that my pastor used is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the Good Samaritan, uh, the, the man was, was robbed and beaten, lying on the side of the road by robbers. And was that the Samaritan's fault? No. He didn't do that. He didn't beat the guy. But what was his responsibility? Right? Jesus said that he saw, had compassion and helped the man. And Jesus said that we're to go and do likewise, right? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we don't, we have not kept God's law. So the point is, the good Samaritan, it was not his fault. He was in no way guilty for beating that man, for robbing him, and for him being injured. But it is now his responsibility as a follower of God to help the man. So today, all, and not just whites, but all of us now, whoever we are, we have the responsibility to use our power to honor God by loving people made in his image. And that involves helping people who are suffering under the legacy of the past. Long answer. Sorry, long, long answer. I'll pass it on to Sam. If, um, if you don't mind, with all due respect, I would actually disagree uh, with my brother uh, Neil here. Um, because, so for example, about, this, about the Good Samaritan example, mm. the, the Samaritan was beat up, hurt, and dying. I don't think that's analogous to black people being less privileged than white people. I I think that analogy works if there is oppression, if there are being hurt, they're being killed, being murdered. If that's the case, completely agree. Mm. But I think a, you know, because some, for example, uh, I'm from Ghana originally, and I can, <laughs> we all know this, but I'll just say to make the point that, that the, the gap culturally, economically, in every, fashion, in every fashion between black Americans and my Ghanaians, massive, mm. very massive. I am not very wealthy, but I'm one of the, I'm probably, I'm definitely in the top five of the wealthiest people in my family history, <laughs> just because of the fact that I live in Canada. Um, that doesn't mean that my relatives back home are being oppressed. Nor does it mean that since I suppose the average white person in my age, perhaps is maybe more um, privileged than I am. It doesn't mean that I am hurt, dying, you know, um, beat up that someone needs to take care of me. So I would say that's different. Um, now there are, so for example, with George Floyd, when he was, being um oppressed by that cop that's when i would say i need to do something i need to speak up but george floyd's experience in that sense isn't my experience just because i am less privileged than my other you know than some of my white neighbors and i think um that ties to i think going back to i think the legacy of history is um it can be a bit complex but I also will disagree with that too, in that 
the wealth gap right now, all the, the socioeconomic gaps right now between white Americans and black Americans today is a lot worse than it was 50 years ago at the very, at, 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 uh, during the climax of the civil rights movement. And one of the examples that I would use to show that I don't think it's even the legacy of racism or the legacy of slavery or Jim Crow is that in Canada, we have a very different history uh, as in black, Amer- black Canadians and black Americans have a very different history in that there were some slavery here. There was some segregation here, but it wasn't anywhere near as wide as it was, as it, as it was in America. And yet amongst many of the immigrants um, who moved from Ghana to or elsewhere, Jamaica, everywhere else into Canada, or even those who were, who originally came from, from America to Canada um, through the Underground Railroad, their, their, their descendants, the disparities between white Americans and black Americans and the disparities between white Canadians and black Canadians is identical. Identical. In some cases, it's even worse here in Canada than it is in America, in some cases. That's true for Britain as well, even though Britain also has a very different history. That's true for France. It's true for uh, Australia as well. Unfortunately, these disparities amongst white people and black people are almost worldwide, even though a lot of these nations have very different histories when it comes to slavery or segregation. And I think, um, you know, this is not a very popular point by um, you know, for many anti-racists, but the one common denominator there is fatherlessness. Now, somebody might say, well, that's perhaps because of legacy of slavery. But then I would say, no, because actually the next 30, 40, maybe 50 years after slavery, there were more black men in the home than there were white men in the home. They were like, just imagine, think about it, right? If you were a man and you were a slave, and you don't have a right to your family. You don't like you. You don't. You can't have a family. You know the. You are really just owned by the white man. Then you finally have the right to have your family and to have your kids. You're gonna cherish that more than anybody else because you now can provide for your family. And that's how it was for a long time until the war on poverty, and and um, and the uh, and well, or before that. Uh, FDR's um, uh, New Deal, where you start to see the trend really uh, increasing in terms of fatherlessness amongst uh, black families. Now, it's been increasing all over, all over you know, every group, but especially black people. So I don't think the legacy of slavery is really the cause. I think the cause is, unfortunately, the war on poverty and some, some cultural issues um, that I think uh, we need to address. No, I appreciate the pushback, Sam. One, just one clarification. When I say that, you know, should we care about, uh, so the analogy to the parable of the Good Samaritan was not that, um, you know, all black people are like the wounded, bleeding man who, we, you know, we have a responsibility to take care of. Obviously, you know, you're not wounded and bleeding, so I don't feel <laughs> a, an urge to rush over and help yeah. you because you're, oh, you're, you're. But my point is simply that we can, we can both affirm that we are not guilty of what happened, and yet, it can be some responsibility to do something, right? So when Paul talks about how we should do good at every opportunity to all men, especially those who believe. And so we can say, now, again, I don't think God holds me accountable. Well, he holds me accountable for everything I have, but uh, it doesn't mean that I have to literally become, you know, uh, impoverish myself and give everything away to, 
to, than to fix society. You know, God calls us to obey him in very concrete ways, uh, to honor him, to love him, and then to love our neighbor. So I'm, not, I'm just not saying, I definitely am not saying that literally every poor black person you see, like you have to you yeah. do everything you can to help them. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying yeah. that the analogy is, I think Christians can, can, they can either say, I'm guilty for this ancient sin and therefore I'm responsible. Or they can say, I'm not guilty, therefore who cares? And I can say, we can, we can both say, I'm not guilty and yet I want to, I, you know, I am my brother's keeper in a sense. I, I do want to see uh, God's glorified in how I spend my time, spend my money, etc. The other thing I'll say is I'd also actually agree so I'm not a policy guy, so I'm not going <laughs> to, I, I, everyone's been begging me to read Thomas Sowell, but I'm already conservative. So I said, I don't need a, another conservative telling me what I already believe. So <laughs> I'll, I, I can't, I won't actually, I, I can't, I don't argue what we ought to do, but I'll say that this is that when I say we should be concerned about say the, the racial wealth gap and we should try to try to try to do what we can to ameliorate it, I don't think we can should prescribe a certain policy. So for example, some Christians might say, hey, this racial wealth gap is caused by the concentration of black urban poverty. Therefore, we need to, I don't know, invest in uh, better schooling, maybe school choice programs. Maybe we need to revamp public education in the cities. But other Christians might say, no, actually it's caused by fatherlessness. So how can we, uh, or even forget government, government involvement. How can my church create a uh, program that equips young black men or anybody in the inner city to be better dads, right? Forget the government, but this is, the church can do this. How can I you know, take my kids and start an after-school tutoring program for other kids that need it? So the, my point is, I think we have to allow for liberty of conscience in terms of how Christians try to bless their neighbors. We should not say, if you don't do A, B, and C, there's these laws, yes, then you're in yeah. sin. Yeah. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us what, I mean, for the most part, doesn't tell us what laws to pass when it comes to things like, you know, what should be the minimum wage, I, I, things like that. It says things like, love your neighbor. And so if the Bible doesn't say how to do, I mean, C.S. Lewis said, the Bible tells you to feed the hungry, doesn't tell you how to cook. So we should leave a lot of room for Christians to disagree on things like, how can we most effectively love our neighbor and not judge them for doing it differently than we do? So Neil, just a, oh, I'm sorry. A quick follow-up question. It'll probably go along these lines, but Anne was asking, Neil, then what are your thoughts about reparations? Mm -hmm. Favor or not favor? What would that look like to you? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to, well, okay. I have a, uh, a short answer. The short answer is I think we really need to clearly affirm that, whites are not corporately guilty for ancestral sin. And actually, I think it was you, Sam, in your interview a few weeks ago, you had some exactly what I would say. Uh, when Christians try to appeal to passages in Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, Deuteronomy, to show that corporate guilt is a, is a category in the Bible, that, that somehow we can be guilty for our ancestors' sin, that's just, I don't think it holds up exegetically at all. So for one, Israel was a covenant nation. Uh, Israel was a type of the church. Uh, you know, God says things explicitly like the father shall not pay for the sins of the son and the, sin, the sons of the sins of the father. So there, are, so there are so many arguments that Sam laid out very nicely weeks ago that just show this category of whites, you know, being guilty for their great, great, great grandfather's sin 
and needing to repent, that is just a completely wrong category biblically. Um, that's number one. In terms of reparations, um, I, I, what I would say is this. The category of reparations is not unbiblical. For example, when you released a, a slave in, uh, under the Old Covenant, uh, under the Mosaic Law, you had to supply him with basic needs so he wouldn't be impoverished, right? So I would say that when the slaves were freed in the United States, they should have been provided with a way for them to not become impoverished, and they were not. And so that's why they ended up as sharecroppers, and you had another whole generation that, that was suffering under terrible poverty. So, so that, that, those reparations should have happened, and they did not. However, that was, you know, 150 years ago. What do we do today? Can we now institute, quote-unquote, reparations? Um, I would, I don't think so. I don't think it's, I, 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 I would give you reasons why I think it's, that's the case. Um, like I said, I would be open to saying, how can we implement policies to fix what's wrong? And again, how Christians think about doing that is very different. But I wouldn't want to call it like a matter of justice, like retributive justice, because um, I think that what you're now saying, when you say things that like reparations to me means you're paying people back what they are owed. But I think it's extremely hard to figure out what someone is owed today after a distance of, you know, six generations. Um, And I think you end up uh, potentially doing things that are unjust. Uh, in order to achieve somehow some of this group justice. So, but, I, but what I would say is I have always been more concerned about the theology than about policy. I think Christians need to have a robust conversation about things like reparations uh, as long as, as long as we can agree on the theology. I think Christians need to reject with both hands the idea that people can be guilty for their ancestors' sin. And one last thing I'll add, I think, I don't know if Sam mentioned this last time, but it's, I think that one of the more powerful arguments with regard to corporate guilt and repentance is the idea of consistency, because we don't see other groups being called to repent for their corporate guilt. Yeah. And I'll say something really, I'm going to get canceled for this, right? But it, I mean, since Sam is here and he'll vouch for me, <laughs> but, and it's- hope so. Why? Well, hope so. You got, you got my back, right? I'm kidding. <laughs> well, and then I, and I, I said this very sensitively, but but I want to say, but I, I want to point it out here. There are lots of other groups. Uh, every group has sinned grievously, and here's some examples: um, Japanese Americans, their ancestors engaged in horrific imperialism and brutality in, during the World War II. Are we calling Japanese Americans to repent for their ancestors' sin? What I mean, and that you could in every people group, including ones that we would view as oppressed and marginalized, but sin doesn't isn't respect your social status. Poor people can sin, poor groups can sin, and so all I'm saying is that if we're going to call whites to, re- to repent for their ancestors' sin, but nobody else, well, that's not a biblical way of thinking at all. And and people say, well, well whites are benefiting today from their sin, sins. Well, but look. In Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra, the Jews were suffering for ancestors' sins, and you're claiming to use them as the model for corporate repentance. Well, they were repenting for sins they were suffering for. Yeah. So you can't get off the hook by saying, well, yeah. whites are guilty because they were, they're benefiting. Well, yeah. it's not a category. Biblically, you, you suffer for, you know, sin is sin. Yeah. And so my only point is I want us 
definitely to agree on the theology. Mm-hmm. And we can have a discussion about policy, but I, we got to get that theology right first. If I can add to that, uh, I think it will shock people to know this, but I think it's not said enough. Nobody, no nation or no people in the history of the world has paid more reparations than America. None. Which is why I find this um, just, it doesn't surprise me, this whole talk about reparations, because unfortunately, a lot of us ignore history. I agree with Neil Shenvey that there was a massive failure and an injustice when, um, when um, you had you know, slavery being made illegal, that they did not, you know, um, give, I wouldn't say reparations, but give restitution to those who had been oppressed and now it's cool. Now go out and figure out life for yourself when it was still a very deeply racist country. Mm-hmm. That was wrong. But we forget that a lot of the things, the New Deal was phrased as a form of reparation for black people. The war on poverty was phrased as a form of, of, uh, of reparations for black people. A lot of affirmative action was phrased as that too. Now we can say it wasn't helpful, and I agree, they weren't helpful at all, but that was the intention. That was part of the argument. And here in Canada, we've actually performed a form of reparations to the indigenous people of Canada to, I would say, disastrous effects, disastrous effects, because just giving people money years after, um, uh, after oppression doesn't really help. You need more than that. And the thing is, so I'm Ghanaian, and I'm from a tribe named Afanti. Our oppressors are the Ashanti. If we, especially we Christians, think that we need to have, oppre- we need to have reparations um, for black people in a much more direct sense. Would we say the same for the poor Africans who oppress my ancestors? I would say, God forbid. I don't want them to be, I don't want their ancestors, sorry, I don't want their lives to be destroyed when they're already poor because of the sins of their ancestors. And I am not oppressed. My people were, but I'm not oppressed. And I think it's fascinating to me that America really is the only nation. Ghana was very involved in the slave trade. Nigeria, so many poor nations today. Do they owe black Americans um, uh, reparations? So we have to be very consistent, which again, Neil Neil said, we have to be. And then if we actually follow this idea to a very consistent conclusion, then we actually end up oppressing the oppressed by taking money from the poor people to give to one of the richest people in in, in the world, which is black Americans. It may not seem so, but black, black Americans are some of the most richest people in the world. I think if you were to take the collective GDP of black Americans, it would be in the top 15, top 20 across the entire world. Right now, that's not to say that there aren't issues in, you know, facing black Americans. I'm just saying it would be horrific to say that Ghanaians, Nigerians, and so many other nations should pay reparations to black Americans today. And, but you would have to say that if we were to be consistent on that level. And the final point about that, sorry, I think we have to differentiate between justice and helping, right? That I am called as a Christian to do both. I am called to help people and to perform justice, but they're not the same thing. So just, just to go back to the great example 
that uh, you know it's helpful to bring in the um, the Good Samaritan here. The issue with leaving the Good Samaritan isn't that you're not just failing to help them; you're failing to do justice there. It's a, it's a you it, it's if you allow a man who's suffering to die or not help them, that is injustice. You are then complicit in that murder. However, if someone is poor and you don't help them, that's not necessarily an injustice in terms of, uh, biblically, of course, all sin is an injustice. But what I mean is I'm called to help poor people, but I'm not called to help every poor person. But I am called to perform justice for every person. Right. So I think reparations, if we want to phrase it as justice, that's wrong. If we want to phrase it as how do people help anybody but black people, that's good. That's fine. But you can't command that as a form of justice. People are free to help whomever they want to help. So long as it's not rooted in partiality. Hmm. That's good. So I'm going to get back to critical race theory uh, for a second, get back on that. And this question was for Niels from John in the chat. He said that he heard an analytic philosopher dismiss your work by saying, quote, Shenvey thinks that critical race theory is a worldview, which is utterly preposterous, end quote. I wasn't sure what to say. Is there some kind of a defeater for your analysis? Do you think it's a worldview, et cetera? No, I'm actually very careful to distinguish between critical race theory, which you can kind of call this academic discipline. And then there is a worldview. No one knows what to call it. People call it cultural Marxism. People call it uh, intersectionality. They use a lot of different terms. And I point out that there's no consensus at all about what you call these ideas. I use the label contemporary critical theory because it's a label that people will talk about it being critical theory. But I try to distinguish this worldview from this discipline, critical race theory. Uh, I know the philosopher in question you're talking about, and he actually quotes an, uh, a, a booklet that I wrote entitled Engaging Critical Theory and the Social Justice Movement. In that booklet, we are very careful, Pat and I, to talk about how crit- contemporary critical theory is the name we give to the worldview, and there are the manifestations are things like queer theory, critical race theory, critical pedagogy, etc., and he, he literally had the title of the booklet on the bottom of his screen. And he said, Shanvi is calling critical race theory a worldview. And we literally said nothing of the sort in that booklet, nothing. So he actually just put that word in accidentally. And he, he actually admitted on Twitter that there's a mistake he made. Um, so the question then is, so actually, I, I do, I, I, even I slipped up one time and called critical race theory a worldview like in an interview off the cuff because they are very similar. but. I, I try to be really careful about um, the, this worldview, as I call it, uh, of contemporary critical theory. Why do I call it a worldview? Well, it's answering worldview questions like, who am I? What's my main purpose in life? Or what, what are my moral duties? What is the ultimate goal of mankind? Right? Those are worldview questions. Where do I find meaning? And criti- contemporary critical theory has answers to those questions. You, you are part of a certain social group, these identity groups, locked in a struggle for power. The problem with, our, with humanity is oppression. The solution is liberation and activism. We're, gonna, we're aiming for a state of equity and equality and social justice. Those are worldview questions, and whatever you want to call this worldview provides answers to those questions. Um, 
Now, that worldview is expressed in a number of academic disciplines, including critical race theory and queer theory and critical pedagogy and uh, intersectional feminism. But I try to distinguish the two. Now, again, I, as I said, he, when, I, when I asked him about that mistake on Twitter, he admitted that, yeah, it was just a mistake. He, he misread what I'd written. Um, but I, yeah, so the, what I would say, this is a huge point. We should not get bogged down in labels. If people want to call this worldview cultural Marxism, they want to call it intersectionality, they want to call it identity politics, call it whatever you want. I want to focus on the ideas themselves because that's where the conflict lies with Christianity, uh, not in what you call the ideas. That's good. So here's a question to either of you. If you've read the book, this is from Joseph. Uh, what are your thoughts if you've encountered it on the woke church by Eric Mason? Uh, Joseph was considering reading it, but wanted to know what he was in for. So have either of you had experience with that? The woke church. I've read some parts, but I've not read the whole book, but I think, I think Neil reviewed it or am I? Uh, yeah, right? no, I reviewed it. I, I read, a, I've read a number of these books sort of within the quote unquote woke movement. I, Maybe I'll be a heretic here. I, I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, I think there were a few things he said that was kind of like, that's not quite right. But I thought it was mostly unobjectionable. Um, there's some, and there's some really moving parts. There's one section I quote in my talks about how Mason's father was beaten really severely by a b- bunch of white men who accused him of a crime he didn't commit. And he talks about how that shapes his view of whites. And it, it just, it was such a moving section. So I, I just, it stays with me even now. Um, so like I said, I, 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 let me put it this way. Uh, I thought there were a few things I would have said, oh, it's not quite right. And, but, but overall it was not, it was nowhere near the level of some of the other books uh, within evangelicalism that I've read that have really incorporated critical race theory in tremendously dangerous ways. Um, so I can, I can, yeah, if you look at my review online, you can, you can just skim it. Um, it's probably worth reading. If you want to, um, if you, if you want to read a much better book on race, I can recommend George Yancey's Beyond Racial Gridlock. If you want to recommend much worse books on race, I can recommend those too. Uh, but I would definitely not put it, uh, in terms of a spectrum, it's, it's not nearly as woke as a lot of the other woke books out there. That just, one, just one more point. I've not read the whole book, but I've read some, some parts, and I know I'm forgetting the names, but he does quote some um, very destructive people. Mm. He affirms some heretics, yeah. uh, unfortunately, some social gospel. I'm forgetting the names of these people. Um, and I think, um, who, you know, whoever that is, uh, forgive me, I forget the name of the person who asked that question. If they, if they do read the book, just be mindful uh, not to just do your research, you know, test the spirits when it comes to every person that he quotes. So I've not read the book and I, I trust uh, Neil's uh, discernments there that it's uh, probably not as bad as other books. But nevertheless, if you do read it, please just be careful of um, some of the people that he does affirm in the book. Yeah, that's also, Sam, that's a great admonition for all of us. Why, and this, I, mean, I don't want to get too worked up here. Why... Is, why is anyone reading without discernment? I mean, is that, is that, do we have to qualify our reading as Christians? We always read with discernment. I mean, I, I'm not blaming you, Sam. I'm just saying, yeah. Oh, don't worry. I, I'm glad you mentioned this, yeah. <laughs> but I, I feel like Christians are just so naive. And I don't know if it's just about, it's about everything about this one issue, but I feel like there are books that I read and I'm thinking, 
how can anyone read this and not see the problems with this? And I think we get in this mindset of, like Sam said, oh, this is a good book. I'll just read it and, and believe everything it says. The only book you should read every, believe everything it says is the Bible. You know, you don't have to read the Bible with discernment. It's, it's the Bible. It's the, it's the, it's the, yeah. the way you discern other things. It is the standard for discernment. Yeah. But everything else, I mean, you, when you read my book reviews or my blog, you should exercise discernment. I, I'll be the first one to tell you that. So, Not mine, though. Mine is perfect. So that, that's good. <laughs> it's, it's inspired. Sam I'm, kidding. Yeah, yeah. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So here's another question. And I, I didn't see this, but have either of you seen the comments from Phil Vischer, uh, the VeggieTales guy? He did a video, I guess, on systemic racism. Uh, have either of you seen that video and care to comment on what he said? I did not watch it, so I can't comment on it. Yeah, I watched it. Um, I'll be honest, I watched it with less attention. Um, so I, I can't counter every point, but he, I know one of his premises is a legacy of slavery. That is a big factor. He talks about how slavery and Jim Crow and redlining has been, um, you know, the basis for all the issues we have today. But even then he frames his main argument from what I remember is the disparity issue. And I think, again, that is not a helpful way to determine oppression or systemic racism. Um, disparities can be a sign of, of, of racism or systemic oppression, but it is not in of itself an independent evidence for racism. And um, so without getting to every, so it's a very long video, 17 minutes, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's hard for me to um, remember each point he makes, but disparities do seem to be his major issues. Now, with that being said, I think, Part of the problem sometimes is you have, and I think I saw this in this video, he, he addressed a lot of historical racism, and that's good. But then he seemed to draw a beeline right to racism happening today. You know, and there are some racist events today, but I'm not saying it was intentionally manipulative, but I'm just saying that when you address so much racism in the past, and then you, then you mention some racist events happening today, you know, so... I'm not, I don't know about uh, Derek Chauvin's um, intentions, but I know that some cops have been racist and have committed police brutality against some uh, black people. But then you can't mention some of these events and the history and then say, well, that's why you have this happening today. That's why you have disparities today. That's not a very helpful way of, um, of proving systemic racism. Mm-hmm. I think, again, Show, oh, sorry, one more thing. He also uh, had, um, he referenced laws. Sorry, not laws, but he referenced, I think it was um, the Misery uh, um, uh, Police Department after, uh, after the uh, Michael Brown killing in Ferguson. They did an investigation and then they claimed that um, the police force was racist. What was the premise behind that? So he uses that as an example of C. The police force themselves say, oh, not the police, but I think the, uh, I'm forgetting who, but the governments in one way. Justice Department, I think, yeah. Yeah, they, they said that it was racist. Well, the problem is they were saying that based on disparities, nothing else. Now, now of course, there were some practices involved with some of the cops that were racist, but their definition of systemic racism from the cops was primarily, um, you know, just the outcome or disparities, which goes to show again how prevalent this kind of thinking is that you would have the uh, you would have the U.S. government or some parts of U.S. government saying that a particular institution is racist, 
because of disparities. So I would say that um, I, I don't think the video was very helpful. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that it wasn't a very strong argument for his uh, claim. Gotcha. So one, oh, go ahead, Neil. Uh, one thing that Sam said I should want to highlight is that the idea, uh, t- so tying historic racism to present day racism, and, and not necessarily coming from critical race theory, but it's definitely a huge part of critical race theory. So remember their first premise was that racism is, is ever present and unchanging. And what they'll say is racism does not, never goes away. It simply evolves. It's a very common phrase they'll use. So they, so critical race theorists would say actually uh, in his book, racism without racist, Eduardo Benia Silva will say that there was the old racism of Jim Crow. He'll call it the old racism but then the new racism he calls colorblind racism. And he says that it's, 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 it's still racism. It's just changed its form, but it's just as effective at reproducing these disparities, racial disparities. So that, uh, that beeline that Sam described between past racism and modern day racism, but you see a one-to-one connection between those two. That's, it's not necessarily critical race theory, but critical race theory would definitely affirm that. And it, yeah. it is a very common, I don't want to say rhetorical, but argumentative strategy where they will look at slavery and look at the black codes and look at, um, look at Jim Crow and then say, now look today at mass incarceration. And then the, the, unsaid, the unspoken premise is they're the same thing. And actually, like the Michelle Alexander in the new Jim Crow says it's the new Jim Crow. Yeah. Yep. But and I, I'm again. I, I'm not about policy. I want to just think carefully. I want to say, is that necessarily the case? Just because two things produce the same outcome in theory, are they equally racist? And I just want to at least caution you that argument is just not a good one logically. You could have disparities without racism. Yeah, go ahead, Tim. You know, it's funny. Michelle Alexander and several other anti-racists would actually say, because disparities are worse today than they were in the 60s, mm-hmm. these, ov- these covert systemic racism is actually more racist than under Jim Crow. But, but that's, again, that's the danger. Once you make disparities the evidence for systemic racism, then that has to be the conclusion, right? So they actually make this point now. And then um, there was a book by uh, Jamar Tisby uh, last year, I believe, called The Color of Compromise. And uh, I found it fascinating. He did, you know, in the first half of the book, there were some other major things that I didn't agree with in the first part of the book. But the first part is, I would say, generally good, where he... he, he deals with the historical accounts and record of systemic racism in America and how the church was complicit in either supporting it or being apathetic to this uh, racism. But then the last part of the book is primarily, essentially, if, you know, if he said this, if you voted for Donald Trump, that's a sign of racism. Uh, And, you know, all these historical, truly verifiable accounts of racism in the past now becomes overt racism. Essentially, if you're conservative, you are complicit in racism. But one of the most fascinating points he makes at the very end of the book is he just says, well, there's no smoking gun for systemic racism. But you read a whole book trying to say you want to prove how the church is complicit in systemic racism. But you're saying there's no real evidence for what you're saying. Like I said last time, if it's covert, then how do you know? 
<laughs> if it's covert, then you, you can't prove it. That's all your, it's, it's your assumption. But yet, even though they, they would claim it's covert, because they're woke, they're the ones that truly see what's happening. Not the rest of us. But because they're woke, they're awakened, they're enlightened to the truth over, uh, about covert racism. And then naturally, it leads to, and even though, it's, even though they'll say it's covert, they are also very loud and angry about it. Because I would imagine that if you're saying it's covert, you'd want to be more humble. And if, if you're a Christian praying, that others would see your point of view. But instead of understanding and being um, sympathetic to why some perhaps aren't as woke as they are, instead they lead to oftentimes shaming people and naming people who don't agree with them as racist. I think. Uh, oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, just following up there, I think, and this is why um, dialogue is so important. So, one of the things that um, that Sam said, I think we'd agree, is that disparities can be caused by racism, but they might not be right. And so, ha- and it's again, the the claim here is always it's covert. It's hard to see. It's insidious. Okay, we're not denying that could be the case. It could be the case. But how do you figure that out? And the answer is, well, one of the best ways is for Christians to come together as brothers and sisters and talk about it. Tell me your perspective. What's your evidence? What's my counter? And you know, this is why it's good when, you know, when Sam and I disagree, I'm like, yes, praise God. We're going to get closer to the truth. Because if, if we can talk as brothers, I'm, maybe we can hammer out an agreement. We both come away with a, with a greater knowledge, a greater, a greater approximation of truth. But I think when you close down the conversation and say, if you don't agree with me, it's because you're not woke. If you don't agree with me, it's because you're secretly racist. That's a conversation stopper. Yeah. And, and the same as if, if you don't agree with me, it's because you're a Marxist. Let's just drop that and say, let's agree to think charitably of our brothers and sisters in Christ, assume the best motives, and then bring out the evidence and talk as, again, as siblings in Christ. Sam, this question is for you. This is from Melissa. She's asking, as believers, we know that Christ is the ultimate answer to solving broken families. But do you think that policy changes like reducing marriage penalties and social welfare programs would be a source of encouraging marriage and reducing fatherlessness in the black community and closing some of the disparities we see? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, unfortunately, we think that, you know, um, throughout the Western world, including Canada, we think the best way to help black people is to um, essentially <laughs> produce laws that hurt black families. Um, but instead, yeah, we need, I, I mean, I also try very hard. I try to just comment on the culture and ideologies. I try very hard not to share my opinion as to what should happen with the laws. I have no problem mentioning it, but I think sometimes I can take away from the real issues here. And uh, Neil and I are primarily writing to Christians. So we want to address the theological aspect, but, um, but I, I, I absolutely, uh, I would say the welfare system, for example, is, you know, uh, orig- it's originally meant to help. The problem is it's, it's just in its implementation, it's been so destructive uh, to many. Uh, where it, you have an incentive not to marry. You have an incentive to divorce, and that hurts kids. Um, I grew up in the welfare system, um, but my mom, uh, by the grace of God, knew that it wasn't healthy for her or for, or for myself and for my siblings to be growing up, um, you know, relying on the government to help us. Temporarily, that's fine. 
which I'm grateful that they did help us temporarily, big time. But unfortunately, some of these laws end up um, perpetuating, you know, single parenthood, and that's not healthy for the single parents or the children. So I definitely think that, yes, the gospel is central. We should, pre- we should be preaching the gospel, absolutely teach what the Bible says about the importance of a father and a mother. Um, and But, yes, po- policy-wise, we need to remove all the laws that are um, that are giving people an incentive to not marry or to not stay married. That's good. So this question... I think the answer is already yes. And, you know, we don't want to slander anyone, but if you feel like there's someone worth mentioning to watch out for, this question from Jeremy Free, are there any Christian writers and books out there that are potentially leading people astray, supporting ideas like white fragility, false understanding of systemic racism, and things like that? And maybe to add on to that, maybe why is that? Do they feel like it's pressure from congregation, or is there might be another reason? Can you please repeat the last part again? So. They're asking, are there any Christian writers and or Christian authors that are potentially leading people astray and supporting ideas like white fragility and the false understanding of systemic racism? Well, the short answer is yes, lots. I I read them all. And um, so I'm always pressured to name names. Tell tell me who these people are. You can go to my website and look at the book reviews. They're 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 not anonymous. I've written them there. But in talks like these, I don't mention the names. And now I know biblically it's fine, right? Biblically, Paul named names. Sometimes, sometimes he didn't, like in Galatians or Philippians. But I choose not to pick out people. And here's, this is an important reason why. If I were to give you a list right now, well, here are the people that are pushing white fragility. They're citing Robin D'Angelo in their own books, Christian authors, evangelical authors. I gave you a list of those people. You might say, well, those are the bad apples. We get rid of them, we're good to go. And I say, no, 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 my friend. The, the problem is not just one or two bad apples. The problem is these ideas that are so pernicious. And so we have to identify the ideas themselves and reject them and recognize them. Because if you pick out a, a few bad authors, like you're going to ignore the vast majority of the sources of these ideas, which are just local people in your church who don't know better and who are recommending white fragility or using that language without realizing what they're buying into. So uh, the short answer is yes. Um, There are lots of books that are pushing critical race theory into the evangelical church, not the progressive mainline Unitarian church, but but into the conservative evangelical dominations. But that said, I think the way to combat that is to understand the ideas and understand exactly why they're false and reject them. I think just, rejecting certain people, rejecting certain labels, like, oh, I don't believe in critical race theory. Well, they, won't, they don't come at you saying we're giving you critical race theory. They're coming at you saying we're, we're teaching you about reconciliation principles. And, oh, you're really good. But you have no idea that underneath those principles are actually all kinds of bad ideas. So that's my, my answer. So in solidarity with my brother, I won't mention any names. However, however... <laughs> One way I will, uh, you know, swim around that is, I would say, I would, I would say, unless it's for research purposes. Now, I think read any book, you know, read any book with discernment. But I think the author of The Color of Compromise, I didn't say his name. I didn't say his name, Neil. <laughs> the, <laughs> the author of The Color of Compromise 
do not I think he's teaching some very dangerous stuff. When you start teaching black liberation theology, when you start saying that you're not sure if abortion is wrong, I, uh, yes, that is, when you start saying those two things, you are no longer a trusted voice for Christianity or the gospel. I would say more than that, but out of, uh, (laughs) you know, I would say, I would would leave, I would would leave it at that, (laughs) you know. One other thing I would say also is that I often frame this issue as, you know, if you adopt this worldview, the following uh, theological doctrines will start falling like dominoes. You'll, you'll, you'll have to cave on gender and sexuality off the cave on abortion off the cave. All these things will, will follow logically from believing these principles. But I would actually point something out that I often don't, which is that even if you avoid that kind of over obvious heresy, there are other issues that you will, just by virtue of adopting critical race theory's approach to race alone, that you'll already start doing harm to your church. So, for example, take white fragility. Let's assume you totally ignore everything about sexuality and gender that's sort of part and parcel with this worldview. You just take D'Angelo's advice on race only, right? Well, you're still going to destroy the church and you're going to hurt the fellowship believers, because you're basically going to be teaching white Christians that they are oppressors and black Christians that they are oppressed. And you're going to say that in order to have harmony and peace and and unity in the church, whites need to repent and need to implement justice and they need to uh, admit their guilt and they need to follow the lead of black Christians and, and black Christians, conversely, should always be conscious that white Christians are, are trying to um, have power over them, are trying to oppress them, are guilty of these, of these terrible sins of the past. That's not the recipe for unity. That's the recipe for disunity and, and, and complete uh, just wrecking your church. So my point is that not just that we have to be on the lookout for theological liberalism in some you know, broad sense, but that even the narrow application of critical race theory to race contains ideas that Christians should absolutely reject. All right. So this question is from Abby. She says, what would you say to someone that says, quote, well, okay, critical race theory is bad, but is it really the main issue concerning racial reconciliation? Is it really the main issue? I'll go to either either of you. I mean, the argument that I, I always get um, is that, well, critical race theory is maybe, maybe it's bad, but white supremacy is, you know, a hundred times worse. And first thing I would say is that you have to be careful how they're defining the term white supremacy because often they've used critical race theory to define, to redefine the term white supremacy. That's number one. Um, But number two, I think it's easier to say this. This is what I often say, rather than trying to rank heresies, (laughs) let's just agree they're both bad because what I have found, unfortunately is people, they say, Oh, you are obsessed with this boogeyman of critical race theory when the real problem is white supremacy. And I'd say, brother, I would be, I am, I will right now, right here, utterly denounce white supremacy as a heresy, as wicked, as evil, if you will do the same for critical race theory. And we don't have to even 
argue about which is worse. We'll just say they're both bad. I mean, which is worse, uh, Arianism or or uh, modalism? You know, like, they're, they're both, I don't know which is worse. They're both bad. Okay, great. Let's both of us say we hate racism and we also think critical race theory is deeply wrong and dangerous. But what I often find is people don't want to say that. But, yeah. So they really want to avoid talking about critical race theory so we can talk instead about not something, something else. So I would just say, avoid the whole issue and just say, let's condemn both. I am more than happy to do that. And the problem with the racial reconciliation movement within the churches is based on not what the Bible says, but what critical race theory says. That's the problem. If we were addressing racial reconciliation from a biblical point of view, rightly, there would be or should be unity. But when you start to say there can be no reconciliation without reparations, Mm -hmm. when you start saying there can be no reconciliation unless you agree with me about what white supremacist means, unless you agree with me, again, all from a critical race theory point of view, that, again, take all thoughts captives to Christ, not, not, not to Christ, but to you know, to, anti, to, uh, racism, to anti-racism. The problem is we are, and I've said it before, we, it's not on us to reconcile races. It's not on us. Praise God, it's not on us. Lincoln couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther Jr. couldn't do it. No one can do it. No one. Not even you, Shenvi. All right? No <laughs> one can do it except for Christ. And praise God, he's already done it. Yes, yes, amen. It's finished. It's finished. All we need to do now is to do as Christ did, pray for unity amongst the church. The world, let them fight. You know, now, of course, we care about the world. But what I mean is the world isn't reconciled. They, they aren't. They are always going to be at enmity, you know, with God and with themselves. But we Christians are already reconciled to God and to each other. We now simply need to believe it and live it out. And one day when Christ comes back, then that reconciliation will be more perfectly fulfilled. But instead of looking to the real, the, the, greatest, ev- the greatest event for reconciliation for black people wasn't, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll put it this way. The, most, the, the greatest liberation that black people have ever received isn't, um, um, the, um, is in the end of slavery or the end of Jim Crow. It's when Christ died and resurrected for black people and for all people. And when he comes back, that liberation will be more fulfilled. When all believers, black, whites, whatever, will be in the new Jerusalem, different skin colors, but the same citizens with the same king. And that is the gospel that we know but unfortunately, we're now making reparations, the gospel. We're now saying you should be unified in something other than Christ. And that's always going to destroy unity. So ironically, the racial reconciliation movement is actually dividing people. We are more divided on race than we were five years ago. We are more divided on race than we were 10 years ago. And that's because of the infusion of critical race theory or anti-racism in the church. So this question is from Jeremy, and he's asking about the legacy of slavery again. Jeremy asks, if current issues are not caused directly by slavery, but by fatherlessness, the effects of past policy attempts to help black people that failed, 
How is that not the legacy of slavery? Aren't those just later steps down the line in that legacy? Um, well, when people say the legacy of slavery, what they mean is that these, that, that slavery is having a direct effect on people today. So when I say that I don't affirm the legacy of slavery as the, the reason for, the, for disparities or troubles that black people uh, face, that's what I'm referring to. Now, if we want to say that all the, all the, um, the policies and the events that happened in light of slavery, then yes, w- w- we can agree with that, right? If slavery didn't exist, you probably wouldn't have had um, you know, some of these welfare policies that targeted black people in some ways being implemented. You probably wouldn't have, probably wouldn't have had that. And that is maybe, um, and I think that's, yeah, so that's, I would say that's true, but that's not what people mean when it's a legacy of slavery. I'm okay saying that, and for sure, even though I think it's a minor point, for sure slavery's had an effect on, on where we are today. Of course, there's a consequence to everything. I would say the biggest effect is actually really how it's led to a lot of bitterness and resentment. And you see that cycle. So for example, one of the fascinating things about what Nick Cannon was saying earlier, uh, well, last week, uh, when he was saying, you know, white people are savages, that they are deficient, they're the true animals. He's saying the exact same thing white supremacists say, the exact same thing. And that is a form of the legacy of slavery, where because white racists were saying these things about black people, now it's tempted many black people to say the same thing about white people. And that, that's, that's the legacy of sin, right? So uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question well, but I would say that I agree that for sure, slavery led to certain consequences that um, ended up affecting black people. But the key point was that it is not directly slavery that is the cause for the disparities today. Yeah, one thing I find helpful in these discussions is just to ask what policies do you want us to implement, right? Rather than asking, well, this is caused by this and this is caused by this, and just say, what do you think Christians should vote on? How should we, how should we vote? What should we do? And then let's actually talk about that. I think, unfortunately, what happens is it's, it really is like a, it's like a shibboleth. Like you have to say the word reparations. You have to say this policy. You have to say mass incarceration. And if you do, that's a magic word. It's like that, that shows that you are on the right side. Well, I would say rather than making that, rather than saying if you don't say mass incarceration and you're not thinking, you're thinking sinfully, say this. What, remember, Vadi Bauckham at a G3 conference talk from the pulpit goes, man, we have too many young black men in prison. You know, and then you know, Vodi and the, the, that, that conference is super conservative. But everybody was like, amen, amen, right? They had no problem talking about, we got to get these young black men out of prison. And I, I have to say, I do think we should figure out a way to fix our drug policy. I'm not quoting legalization here. I'm just saying we are destroying black families, right? You talk about black families, right, Sam? Can we find a way? I don't know. I'm not a policy guy. But can we find a way to not hurt families who need dads, any dads in the home? I don't know how to. But don't you feel like Christians on all sides of the political aisle could get behind a policy that would that goal was to get black men in the house? I mean, right? Can we all agree on that? 
So if we focus on policy, I think we can actually avoid a lot of these even dangerous ideologies because we'll be agreed on things that all Christians can agree on, like families matter, fathers matter. We don't want it. Who wants to see a third of black men, you know, in some form of, you know, police control, you know, no one wants that. So, but, so the question is to me, what can we do? And then we have to have a, a, an actual discussion about, well, like you said, are we going to end up hurting people with these laws or not? So we, and that's the job for Christian yeah. economists, Christian yeah. policymakers. But I think asking the right questions yeah. will help move the conversation forward. Yeah. For, for what it's worth, I, well, I won't say my political view. Maybe I don't know. I am, um, I, I, I think the war on drugs is, is a disaster. I think it's wrong. Mm. The, the, one of the fascinating things, so which is why I'll be honest, uh, Vadi Bokum is like one of my heroes. I, I, <laughs> man, I'm, yeah. Anyway, I won't say more before I, you know, fangirl over here. Um, <laughs> but no, I am, and, and I agree. There's way too many um, people, and especially black people, in prison. The one thing that I, 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 I always get back to on this issue is we have to be very careful about about addressing how to fix a particular community's problems, mm-hmm. at least politically, right? I think voluntarily, organizations, absolutely. The problem is that when a, a nation decides to create a policy to help one particular group, it always ends in disaster. And ironically enough, one of the biggest evidences for this is actually why there's so many black people in prison. The whole premise was in the eighties, it was to help black people. That was the premise. So it was actually the focus on, it was the, the, uh, the um, democratic black, sorry. Anti-drug crime bill. Yes. Which was pushed by a lot of the black um, leaders of the time. You know, they were saying, look, we need to help black families. So, so produce this, uh, produce this, um, this uh, anti-drug, uh, you know, the war, the war on drugs, so we can help black communities. That was a premise, and it ended up in disaster. So I'm all for getting rid of um, the war on drugs. Now, I'm not saying we should be pro-drugs. I'm just saying that some of the policies were not helpful. But the problem is I think that we need to focus it more on let's help anybody, black, white, or brown, anything who is being affected by these policies. Because if we focus primarily on one group, we're going to, I think, inevitably end up perhaps hurting that same group. If we focus, I think, on the universal aspect of this whole thing, then I think we're more likely to create more universal, universally benefiting um, policies and laws. That's good. Well, I'll go to this question too. This is from Dennis. He says, can you talk more about the move to relabel Asians as white adjacent or not as people of color by many anti-racists? What do you want to know about it? Yeah, yeah, that's um, Bonilla Silva has a phenomenally interesting graph in his book, Racism Without Racist, where he talks about the evolving tripartite racial hierarchy, where he has on the top, he has whites. And whites includes, let me think about this now, whites includes some Asians, assimilated Asians are going to be called white eventually. In the middle, he calls it honorary whites. And the honorary whites includes like biracial people. And I forget what else. It's like, like, like most Asians, Native Americans who live in cities. And then there's the bottom rung is called the collective black category, which includes African-Americans, but also like 
Vietnamese people, so Cambodia. But he's, so he has this three-tiered system of what he, he's not saying this is a good thing. He's just saying he foresees this being the new racial hierarchy. Um, in terms of like, why is it happening? I mean, oh gosh, it's, it's a lot to go into. One of the things that just happened like a few days ago on Twitter, Nicola Hannah-Jones, who is the lead for the 1619 Project, uh, got dogpiled for this tweet where she's criticizing um, some school system was saying that a school they had was majority people of color. And they're like, yeah, they're trumpeting that as, wow, like our school is majority people of color. And she said that was disingenuous because most of those people of color were Asians. And, that, and she, she implied in her tweet that, that those people don't count as people of color. And so the, the why, and then she said, why well, you took me out of context. I didn't mean that. But the, the bottom line is that um, re- remember that critical race theory does view things in terms of oppressor and oppressed. And so whites are the oppressor, and then all other people are people of color. They're the oppressed people. The problem is when you do that, um, then you, because you do that to sort of say, okay, the whites are on top and everybody else is oppressed. But then when you realize that, well, Asians are disproportionately overrepresented in elite schools and in colleges and uh, income and all kinds of, I'm half Indian. So I can say the Indian Americans, the median income of an Indian American family is over a hundred thousand dollars a year. We're like number one baby. I guess I'm happy, whatever. (laughs) But but the point is, but we're, you know, people, Indian Americans are not, are like way outperforming median whites. Um, so when you begin to see that, then you're like, oh, wait a minute now. So that how do I then sustain that narrative? And then the answer becomes, I now have to, uh, you have to find tension between groups of color. Yeah. So I, I just apparently in the last few weeks, they've now invented a new category called brown fragility. It's the analog for white fragility, only it's brown people who have to reckon with their internalized anti-blackness because even brown people can be, are immersed in this anti-black culture. And so we have to interrogate our anti-blackness as brown people. So, okay. So there's a, there's a lot of theory you can get into, but the bottom line is I think we should just see this, this, way of viewing the world is not going to lead to unity. Um, Peter Bogosian, James Lindsay, and Helen Pluckrose coined the phrase grievance studies to denote these academic fields because they're always trying to find new grievances. That was the joke. Um, They're trying to find new ways in which people are oppressed. Now, again, I'm not going to make light of the fact there are people that are hurting, that are poor, that are, they're actually experiencing real racism my point is their lens for viewing the world is going to always find new divisions, new ways in which power is un- unequally allocated. That's just part of the program. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for this way of thinking to provide unity and peace and flourishing, it ain't going to happen. You know, I, um, I, I, I would love uh, Neil's uh, thoughts on this but, uh, later, but I refer to this also as a bit of relativism in the sense that it's truth. Ironically, you know, the anti-racist and critical theorists are always criticizing Western ideology. The problem is, this is a very Western ideology. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't work in Africa. 
doesn't work <laughs> in Asia, doesn't work in the Caribbean, doesn't work in uh, 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 South America. For example, one of the fascinating things as, 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 uh, to get back to what Neil was saying is the term person of color. I'll be honest. I can't stand that. I, I hate it. If someone calls me that, I take, it takes so much grace for me to say, okay, just, just leave it alone. Um, but I find it fascinating when they are – now, forgive me. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I find it fascinating when some Chinese Americans or Canadians talk about how they're people of color and – um, you know, white people are, you know, oppressive and everything else. Then I say, I think to myself, okay, how would you refer to the nation of China? What would you say about China where black people are being oppressed under the, under the Chinese, not just black people as uh, I'm forgetting how to say their names, the, the, Uyg- the Uyghurs or yeah. The, yeah, Uyghurs, Muslim, yeah, yeah, where they're being oppressed. Right. And how do you deal with that? It's not a whiteness issue it's a human condition. Right in Cuba right now, even though they act like you know, uh, you know, they're the Cuban, they act like they're very pro-black. They're oppressing black people in certain ways over there too. So you have black people, as I said, I said before in Ghana, black people are oppressing black people. Asians are oppressing black people. It, 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 I mean, it's everywhere, right? That this is not a matter of white people versus people of color. It's a matter of sinner versus sinner. That's really what it is. The way, so the way that theory would explain that is that they would talk about uh, oppression in, in our Western context. And they, w- they would say, yeah, yeah, sure, in other countries, other people are the oppressors. Um, but here in the U.S., the whites are the oppressors, and the men are the oppressors, and the, uh, the heterosexuals are the oppressors. Uh, so they would, they would say that, yeah, sure, in, in Ghana, you might have other – or it, it, the example they use often is Brazil. In Brazil, there's a different racial caste system – with a different hierarchy. Uh, just, it's not the same as like in the United States. Um, that said, they would argue that whiteness is a global project through colonialism. So through colonialism, they would argue, there is the white supremacy has gone global and through mass media and through things like that. So it, it is a little complicated, but yeah, yeah, I, I agree that they, they, they have to tweak their theories to, to work around other countries. So just a quick one uh, follow-up for you, Neil. This just came in as a fellow Asian. I'm curious, do you find the term model minority offensive? I'm finding that this term is being highly demonized currently. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's the reason. Now, now, why is that? Again, it's because um, when you point out that Asians actually are doing quite well in terms of all of these different categories, um, well, how do they, how do they then, because they, they don't want that to be a counter argument. So when you claim that there's this oppressive, white supremacist culture and people say, wait a minute, if that's true. Then why are Asians like making all this money and doing really well and going to elite schools and the ant and that they will say, um, what you're doing when, so they will say, you can't say that because you're, you're, um, you're using this model minority myth and they'll point out rightly that many Asians like the Vietnamese, um, the Hmong, a bunch of other, uh, ethnic groups who are Asian, actually are not doing well at all. So it varies between different ethnicities. And that sort of should be obvious because like, oh, Asian American, Asian American, have you been to Asia? It's a big place. Like there are a lot of different countries in Asia. So it is kind of odd that we're like, oh, Asians. Oh yeah, sure, Asian. Anyway, um, but yes, it's demonized because it's seen as, in some ways it is a threat to the idea that we're a white supremacist nation. 
because because say Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans and Korean Americans tend to do fairly well in, in any of these different objective measures. Uh, am I offended by it? No, I mean, not no, not at all. Um, I think I, I think Sam, did you say this? I think Sam said earlier that he tries to only be offended by sin. And I was like, wow, that's some good stuff right there. Uh, I think that's a great attitude to take. You know, sin offends God. And maybe only sin should offend us. Mm-hmm. And especially um, one of the slogans that's very popular within critical theory is the slogan that uh, impact is greater than intent. Impact is greater than intent. So if you say something and someone says, oh, that offended me. And you say, well, I didn't mean it. You say, they say, hey, impact is greater than intent. You need to apologize. Um, what I would say is that for Christians, it should be the opposite, is that I want to say that intent is much bigger than in- impact. If I get my feelings hurt, but I know the person didn't mean to, I shouldn't hold it against them. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, but the Bible is completely the opposite. We should be exactly. slow to anger, yeah. abounding in love, gentle, kind, you know, mm-hmm. f- quick to see good in people. And mm-hmm. so the idea that, you know, if, if, if you hurt my feelings for some reason that, and you don't intend to, I actually have to be forbearing. I have to say, Hey, slow down. Hey, they didn't mean it that way. Um, the, fascinating th- the fascinating thing is that if, if, I, if, if I am um, offended by, what's, by something some, a person said, and it wasn't a sinful thing, but I'm offended by it, I'm actually in sin because I'm refusing to hope all things. I'm refusing to be slow to anger. If I'm, I'm not just referring to just an offense. I mean, I'm angry yeah, and yeah. I'm upset with someone when they are, they said something and I, I, I am convinced it was racism. And I'm, that, that is actually a sin, but yet critical. So for example, uh, uh, white in white fragility, uh, Robin D'Angelo says that it's actually racist to believe that racism has to be an intent. It's racist to say that, well, I didn't mean it. So, you know, I, I can't, she says that, but that's, so she's really calling what the Bible teaches as an evil racist practice. So this is why we, we have to be very careful here that it is saying that certain biblical righteous thinking or deeds is actually a sin. You know, trust me, I, I went to a, um, an all white Dutch reformed church I was the only black person to ever go there. And I was probably the only black person uh, mm-hmm. since, you know, so to have gone there and were there awkward moments? Yes. But, you know, I had to realize that in the same way that they were making me feel awkward, I was probably making them feel awkward by certain things too, right? That it's, we're human, but it was awkward, but I can't say it was sin. I have to hope all things. It's love. Is it radical? Is it hard? Yes. But that's what the Bible calls us to do. One thing I would add, though, is that when you say, okay, impact, so clearly we should look for, we should have the um, very charitable interpretation of people's actions. That said, if you're walking around and not caring about the impact you have, well, that's not loving either. So if I'm walking around, you know, just saying, always saying, you know, insensitive things and things that are hurtful, and people around me have always been like, okay, he didn't mean that. He didn't, look, I got a problem. I, you know, I'm just being a big jerk. I got, I got to say, hey, hey. I'm called also to lay down my rights and say, if I'm hurting you, I don't want to hurt you, brother. So 
it, I, I think it goes both ways. I mean, Paul talks about this in Romans and Corinthians that we have to all bear with one another, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and if someone is being, you know, the weak brother is offended, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of an example of this, but I mean, yeah, but if, if I, if I by my behavior am, am wounding him, right, even though it's not something sinful, but it's sinful if I don't care. If I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I don't care about that. Well, that's yeah. a sin, actually. You should yeah. care about your brother. Yeah. Thank thing. you for adding that. That's a great yeah. point. Man, we are, uh, we are getting close to the end here. I want to respect you guys' time. But do you have time for maybe just a couple more? You guys still yeah. good? Yeah. You can say no, too. We won't be mad at you. No, uh, we, we won't be offended by your uh, – <laughs> man, this is so enjoyable, though. But we got this question on Twitter earlier, and if you guys don't – I don't actually know the context. If you don't either, you could just speak to the broader point. But it said, um, I'd love to know your thoughts about J.D. Greer's use of critical race theory in the 1619 Project to shape conversation for SBC churches. Um, so maybe speak into that if you do know, and, you know, just the broader conversations that are happening right now in the name of reconciliation in evangelical spaces. What are you guys seeing and, and what are your thoughts? I'll feel that. I go to JD's church. Oh, okay. She, she, Pat and I both do. So we, and we've written a ton of articles on critical theory, critical race theory. And uh, I like to respect his privacy because he's my pastor. Um, so I don't like to say, well, you know, here's what he thinks, but I, I will say this. And so I, I just, don't want to, you know, I don't name names anyway, but he, he is, he is, he is definitely aware of the work that Pat and I have done. And we're both committed members of the summit. Um, that, that person who asked me that, you know, it was my bad there. She'd actually DM'd me several times to get my attention. And I just lost track of the DMs. I'm getting like a gazillion DMs every day. So when she said that, I was like, ah, oh, I got to answer her. So <laughs> I asked her, I was like, wait, did you use the 1619 project? And she said, well, he mentioned 1619. I was like, no, 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 no. So I went back and looked at the tweet. He mentioned that it was the 400-year anniversary of the first Africans arriving in Jamestown. That would happen in August. Mm. So he tweeted out, oh, it's in 1619, the first 20... And she thought she was referring to the project, the New York Times project, which is, it actually is steeped in critical race theory. But he was not... As far as I know, he didn't make any reference to, to uh, the 1619 project at all. Um, in terms of critical race theory uh, in, in evangelicalism in general, I certainly think it's a problem. It is influencing our language and our thinking to a, an alarming degree, and, and uh, people are even citing people like Robin D'Angelo. Um, that said, I also do want to give pastors and, and just Christians a lot of grace in terms of how I interpret them. So when I hear a Christian say things like, use phrases like white privilege or social justice or intersectionality, I want to say, hey, what do you mean by that? I shouldn't assume the worst. Now, my ears should go up and say, now, wait, what do you mean by that? But I don't, like, you know, the Bible says, love hopes all things. Love, you know, assume the best of them. Um, and I think that, and also the other thing too, is that a lot of Christians, and this is for me very frustrating, I do think that Christian leaders need to be a little bit more um, courageous in speaking out against critical race theory by name. So I think there are plenty of leaders who realize there are problems. They know it. They know it's there, but they don't want to be called a racist. Yeah, and so they just like look. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to talk vaguely about justice and reconciliation, and I'll say these things that 
Because, you know, and frankly, they're not racist. They hate racism. They abhor it. And they do feel, and if they're white pastors, maybe they feel a little bit of guilt. They're like, you know what? Maybe I'm not as sensitive as I should be. Maybe I do have racism in my heart. I mean, I'm a sinner. Who knows? So because of all those reasons, they are hesitant to call it out. And two, they even might be saying, maybe this is the right way to think about it. And I want to just gently come alongside them. And frankly, this is where I think people like, be very un-PC here, black believers like Sam and Nerva can say, hey, brother, like we, we know you care. We know you're trying to do the right thing. We just want to tell you, as black believers, it's okay to oppose this, right? Yeah. You, we Don't be afraid of being called a racist. And, and frankly, pastors, I, I, I want to be harsh here, but you got to man up a little bit, mm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, okay, don't, 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 dog whistle. I'm just, I don't want to be a hard, I'm just saying, listen, you're going to be called names. Yeah. And, and let me tell you something. You're a sinner too. You probably do. I have racist thoughts in my heart. I have all kinds of sin in my heart. I can't even see it. But we, we have to stand on God's word. We have to, while confessing our own sin, say, and yet, I think this is a dangerous idea. This is a dangerous ideology. And you don't be afraid of what people will call you if you can search your heart and before god say i am not racist but i think this is a real danger just say it say what the bible teaches and then let the chips fall where they may even if you get called a racist again don't be a racist but please people are i mean i get the craziest emails and messages i'll just say one i got a message from a black pastor a black pastor was like, man, I understand racism. He said, and he said, but there are four couples right now in my church who are on the verge of separating yep. over critical race theory, yep. over this tension. Yep. I heard just other days, like people are literally, the married couples are fighting because one of them supports Black Lives Matter, other one doesn't. And he was like, how do I help my people? As a, and, and, and how do I teach them critical race theory is dangerous? And I just want to say there are real people who are really in danger out there. And if you want to just keep your head down because you're afraid of you know, getting called names, yeah. think, think, care more, care about loving your flock and loving other Christians more than you care about getting called names. You know, if I, if I could add, thank you so much for saying that, Neil. I'm, um, to be honest with you, I, it's, I've received, like Neil, received so many encouraging emails, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. But some of them leave me very discouraged, to be honest with you, even though they're encouraging me. Um, because they'll be saying things like, Sam, I hope you know we're, we're secretly, I'm, a, I'm in a group of you know, pastors, and we're secretly passing around your articles to ourselves. <laughs> You're secretly doing this? Like, <laughs> that doesn't encourage me. I'm glad you're helped by it, but pastor, I'm just a blogger. You are a pastor. <laughs> Preach the gospel. And to be honest with you, I, I, I'll, I'll be very frank, and I'm going to offend some people here, but I have to. It is evil to want to come out and correct the all right, because it's easy to correct the all right, because you want to care about white people here who are being who are embracing this ideology. But when so many black people are dying, break their marriages, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be angry, but people are dying 
People are leaving the faith. But because you're scared to be a racist, you rather let people go to hell. That is awful. That's evil. Preach the gospel in season or out of season. It's not about me. I don't, I'm, again, I'm just a blogger. But pastor, it's not about you. It's not about your pulpit. It's about Christ. Ironically, the idea is I care so much about black people, I'm afraid to teach the truth that will help black people. <laughs> How is that helping anybody? Because, I, look, just today I got a text from a friend of mine too saying, Sam, pray for me. My marriage is in trouble because of this stuff. He's not doing anything wrong. I can just say that. But because of his views, his marriage is in trouble. This is, and he's a black person. He's not a white person. He's a black person. This stuff is destructive and is divisive. I can tell you, I've been called a coon by many people. Nobody cares because it's not being said by, it's not, I'm not being called a nigger by white people. It's, 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 now I'm not saying I need to be babied. It's not that. But if this is about sin, if this is about the gospel and you're afraid to do it, you're not, you're not obeying Christ. Now, I'm not saying everyone needs to come out there and be going on a crusade. I'm not saying that. But if you are concerned, if the Holy Spirit is letting you see that what you see in your Bible and what you're, seeing, you're hearing elsewhere, if you're seeing that this is not compatible, that this is not the gospel, but some are saying it's the gospel, you have a duty to preach against it. And that's the concern here that I, it, it, it's sad to me that pa- pastors are being afraid. And I will say this final, final point on this, on, on this particular topic. If you are afraid to address this issue because you might be called a racist, then what confidence do you have to say that you're going to say that homosexuality is a sin if people will get offended by it and call you homophobic? What's the difference? We should not be surprised when the world is going to hate us for standing on biblical theology. And this is easily leading to many people being ashamed of the gospel. Yes, preaching the gospel might mean that you might be called a racist. But it might, in the past, also mean you might get killed for it. So why be afraid to teach the truth? Well... (laughs) You just rebuked that. <laughs> that was good, man. Um, okay. Literally, sorry, just two questions. Okay. So, so one, I was we we addressed this uh, last a couple weeks ago with Ryan Bomberger, but I would just be curious. I'd love to hear you guys' feedback on it as well. We talked about the movement from, well, the Black Lives Matter movements, you know, not Marxist too. Well, now we have to admit it's Marxist, but you know what Christians are being inconsistent because they always, you know, they support politicians where they don't agree with everything or they support certain organizations where not everything's biblical. So why now are they selecting this one thing as though they can't support it? It's, it's because they're racist. You know, that's, that's kind of the line of, of thinking. What are your guys, how do we, how, how would you encourage your church members or brothers and sisters to respond to that type of claim the the sentiment black lives matter i think ryan said this but yeah of of course we affirm that black lives matter um i don't use the hashtag because of its connotations i mean do you use the 
hashtag it make America great again because you just want to make America great again through repentance and faith in the gospel? Well, no, because oh my gosh, that's a that's that's taken. Well, yeah, I know it's hashtags have like connotation, and so if you want to if you want to express the sentiment that Black Lives Matter, well, then just say Black Lives are valuable. There you go, right? So that's the way to express the sentiment without expressing anything that would be confused with the organization. I think in terms of, well, why can't we support this organization? Uh, because we, we favor some of what they do, just not all of it. In the same way that we support politicians who we, you know, we favor some of what they do, but not all of it. And I would just say, number one, what exactly do you favor in the Black Lives organization, the, the Black Lives Matter organization? Because again, policy-wise, it seems to me like a lot of their policies are either radically wrong or, or it, at best, like, you know, questionable. Um, so why would you need to support that organization when there are plenty of other organizations out there that are doing very similar things, right? It'd be like saying, you know, I'm going to support this politician who I totally you know, agree with 90% of his views because the 10% I agree with, when there are other politicians that support all of these you like, why would you do that? Um, that's what, so that's what I would say in terms of like, and then the other thing too is that fundamentally, fundamentally Black Lives Matter is based on a wrong foundation. In other words, they're not just accidentally based on a wrong foundation. The entire basis of their activism is critical race theory and queer theory and things like that. Um, so it, it, in, a, in other words, we can say have co-belligerency with say an atheist pro-life organization in terms of just agreeing on policy, for example, right? But I'm not going to give my money to a pro, an atheist, it's like a secular pro-life, you know, I, I really appreciate secular pro-life's work, but if I have to choose between giving money to a pro-life atheist organization and a pro-life Christian organization, well, I know where my money's going to go. Right. So it's a, and, and if, and if the atheist pro-life organization, a fundamental part of their activism was their atheism, well, then I certainly wouldn't support them. If they were you know, spending 80% of their time passing out Richard Dawkins, the God delusion and 20% of their time doing pro-life stuff. Well then no, there's no way I'm going to support them because their activism is inextricably linked to their atheistic worldview. And I think in the same way, what Black Lives Matter does is by their own admission and outworking of their unbiblical worldview. And so why would you, again, why would you support that? Yeah. Anything you'd add to that, Sam? Um, please forgive me. Can you please uh, rephrase the question again? Yeah. Just uh, your response to, uh, you know, the folks that are saying, well, Christians are showing their racism because they will partner with all these other organizations or po politicians that they don't agree with everything on, and they don't apply that same standard to the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think Neil said it very well. Uh -huh. It's not, people aren't saying we mostly agree with Black Lives Matter, except for this particular point, mm -hmm. at least the ones that would be against Black Lives Matter. They're saying, no, as Neil said, that they are fundamentally wrong. Their, their premise is wrong and their solution is wrong. So even if they have certain things right, perhaps, even if one might agree that there is a police brutality problem in America, that isn't just what Black Lives Matter is saying. Their entire premise, they, they have the wrong diagnosis and the wrong medicine. So what's the point in supporting them? Um, now, yes, I don't, you know, I don't support, anytime I vote for a politician, I'm not agreeing with everything they say, but I'm saying they are the best person for the job, right? At least as far as I can identify. 
people believe that Black Lives Matter was the best person or the best group for the job, if they believe that they are right, but they ignore them just because they don't care about black people, they don't believe that black lives really do matter as the, as the, uh, you know, as the sentence, then that's racist. But you don't, but no one is forced to agree with one. No one is forced to approve of one group just because they may have certain things right or that they support another group, you know, especially look, as a, as a pro-life advocate, I cannot in my conscience for many reasons, but especially that I cannot in my conscience agree, support black lives matter. They, they are radically pro-abortion. So how can I, right? So there are many, many reasons behind why people choose to reject black lives matters, um, ideology and their, and their uh, solutions. Yeah. No, that's good. Thanks, Sam. And last question here, just to, to, to get feedback from you guys. You know, since we've started this uh, forum, I think you tweeted this a while back, Neil, maybe a few weeks ago, just that how we were really seeing the fruits of anti-intellectualism in the church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll come across people, they'll, it's like whatever the last thing they heard, they're convinced of it. <laughs> and, and that, you know, it's, it's very typical. I think right now people don't, we, you know, we have many of us haven't even been given the tools to analyze competing viewpoints and to think through arguments. And so in this cultural moment where we're at with all this stuff, how do we begin to help? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like we'd have time to kind of like take someone through a classical education <laughs> for years and like what do we do going into church next Sunday having these conversations with people that really are just kind of going back and forth with this whole issue I mean if they really aren't able to think carefully about any issue I mean you just got to start slow and like explain things you know very clearly to people Um, but I do think it has to be a so in, in the short term you can just say look these ideas are wrong here are the bible verses that contradict them and say, you know, when you say something like, well, you're guilty, you're great, great, great for their sins. You're like, no, Ezekiel 18 says. So you can do that. In the, and in the, in the short term, you can talk about you know, why do we think that these ideas are false. And I, I found that, you know, my talks, people uh, that say that, A, I, I could understand it. They say, I, I'm totally unfamiliar with these ideas. And yet they are able to think through um, the reasoning I present and the example, I use a lot of illustrations, so you can do it. Um, in the long term, though, in terms of intellectualism, I may say something pretty, I think it should be obvious, but get to know your Bible, people. I mean, get to know your theology. I feel like you say, well, how do we teach critical thinking? Have you read the Bible? <laughs> have you have you cracked open a systematic theology textbook or you know, a commentary lately? Because if you just want to be just a faithful believer, uh, that will sharpen your intellect. I mean, John Bunyan wasn't, I think he was illiterate and he was converted and he taught himself to read and write and produced this incredible work of genius, Pilgrim's Progress. And it was all because he said, you know, the Bible sharpened him. I think actually C.S. Lewis talks about how Bunyan could do that because he was just so in love with God and so wanted to understand scripture that he applied himself uh, to, to reading the Bible and to understanding it. And I think that it, it's as simple as 
going to a church which preaches expositional sermons, which exegetes texts, which, uh, you know, like, oh, what is, what did, what did uh, um, David Martin Lloyd-Jones's ministry was called Logic on Fire, right? The Bible is a logical book. It's a rational book. It's hard to understand, certainly, but that's actually that's, that's good because it makes you think. So I think in the long term, we should just wean ourselves off of this sort of shallow emotionalism. I'm not saying emotions are wrong or bad. I think it's wonderful. But our, our love for God and our Christian behavior and our ethics and our emotions, they all have to be governed by truth. and if we understand that, then we will naturally begin to develop our intellects and our reasoning abilities. I think, um, you know, whenever he's, I let him speak first, I always regret it because then I'm like, what else can I add? <laughs> what else can I add to that? Because I want to try and figure out something to say. No, um, I think one of, look, there's so many, everything is intellectual. Everything is. Um, but, it's a matter of how do we choose to, to communicate it. And I think one of the things I try to do when I'm talking to people about who don't know or understand these issues or who want to use anti-intellectualism to try to dismiss, um, you know, what my positions might be, it's a matter of just breaking down in very simple terms what's being said by the critical race theories or Black Lives Matter or anybody else, and then to address that with what the Bible says on these things. And then I think it's so helpful. I think it's so, so important that we establish common ground with anybody, especially people that may not agree with this. So establish common ground, tell them that, look, I agree with you on this, if if it's genuine, of course, and then say, hey, we agree with this, but we may not agree. So for example, I would of course agree that racism is horrible and it's wrong and it has damaging effects. I can say to someone, look, I agree with you. I've experienced that myself. Like it's just, sometimes when we don't address common ground and you go immediately into addressing the intellectual or other arguments, the person who's already angry or hurt, isn't going to listen to you at all. They will just shut out. But if you establish that, perhaps you might give them room to say, okay, perhaps this person is on my side. And then when you establish that, then you can just say, okay, well, here, what we disagree on is crucial. And that could lead to how you want to stand your brothers, you, you know, your, your fellow Christians, how you, can understand, how you understand God, how you understand sin, how you understand yourself. And when you then address the things that you disagree on, and you always point it back to, as Neil said, going back to scripture, to the scriptures, because to me, that's what I try to do, because otherwise, what's the point? You know, the Bible is, is, is um, sufficient to correct, reprove, and to train all people in righteousness. If we don't always go back to the scriptures, there's no hope for anything. So. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, unfortunately some people do use the intellectual arguments to, um, I think to manipulate or confuse some people into agreeing with them and then some dismiss it by not wanting 
to, a, to address the intellectual aspects of this entire issue. And I think we can do both by establishing common grounds, explaining things in simple terms, and just going back to what the scriptures say about these things. Well, thank you guys, man. This has been amazing. And I know the, our uh, fellow Zoomers here have really, really enjoyed it. Thank you all, too, for joining us on Zoom. And if you can, I think one of the biggest things I want to want you to do from this race forum we've been holding now for this is the fourth week is, you know, follow these guys ministry, go to their websites, utilize, don't, don't be a secret passer of the blogs. <laughs> go ahead and be uh, bold with them. Uh, you know, recommend this stuff to people, share these um, YouTube things. I think, getting this information right now out to people in the church can be really helpful. And for many people, it's starting them on the journey of actually becoming more biblical. It's kind of like one of those things that for me in my story, what, what really educated me was struggling with elements of the faith. And it taught me, it opened me up to learning how to think through those um, apologetic questions. And I think this conversation for many people can be a starting point for the church to get back to biblical theology and in that sense be a positive thing. So share, uh, it's slow to write. I think Stephen's sending you those links uh, for Sam's blogs and then Neil's um, page. We have uh, shared that as well. Neil Shimby, um, apologetics.com, something like that. We have it on there in the show notes. So please uh, share those videos, stay connected. I think we're going to try to come back with a God and government series next and, um, and have some guests in. And again, thank you, Neil. Thank you, Sam, for every, everything you guys are doing. We are praying for you guys, praying for your ministry, praying that God continues to expand your platforms because we need your voices right now in this space um, to, to help us to tear down uh, ideas and speculations that are raised up against the knowledge of God. And so thank you guys. And, and we'll hopefully we'll see you Zoomers again here shortly. We'll send you an email when the next one's going to be. So y'all have a good night. Thank you so much. We want to thank everyone that has joined us over these several weeks as we discussed race in the church in our open forum. We want to remind you that you can watch all these videos on YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Podcast. All of our open forum videos are on there in a playlist, including this episode. You'll find a link in show notes to our YouTube channel, as well as links to Neil Shenvey and Samuel Say, their websites and social media. We encourage you to follow them and check out their work. We would love to interact with you on social media. You can follow us at FreeMindFM on Instagram and Twitter. On Facebook, our page is FreeMindPodcastFM. And if you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. If you can do that, and maybe you can just share the podcast on your own social media, you can share the link freemind.fm. That's our website. And from there, you have links to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and whatever your favorite podcast player is. Again, thank you for joining us for our open forum on race. Stay tuned for our next series, and we'll catch you next week.